When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. I'm Jared Halverson, and this is Unshaken, and I'm so glad to have you back, assuming that you're back. Uh, I can't blame you if, you if you've given up on me. Uh, the last two weeks were the longest lessons I think we've had since we started this a few years ago, especially last week. Four hours just to finish off Abraham and Sarah. And between those two weeks worth, that's seven and a half hours on, uh, on Abraham and Sarah. But honestly, I think they deserve it. Yeah, they deserve our, our deep thought. There's so many examples that they, that they gave us, so many lessons that they taught. And I really hope that, that you endured it well. If you weren't able to get through everything, I understand, but at least try to watch the end of last week's video as it kind of sums up with the help of the, writers of he, the writer of Hebrews and of Romans, uh, some of the lessons, the overarching lessons that Abraham and Sarah's lives teach us. Uh, we, this week we'll spend it with, uh, with Isaac and Rebecca, and next week we'll spend our time with Jacob and Rachel. And so as we go through the stories of these patriarchs and matriarchs, I hope we feel a little like Abraham and just seek the blessings of the fathers and the mothers and all the happiness and peace and rest that they give us. Uh, I am grateful for the things we were able to talk about. It's funny because today is my birthday as I'm filming, and uh, honestly, I can't think of a better way to spend it than with one of my favorite gifts of all time, namely the scriptures, and with some of the absolute best people on the planet, namely each of you. Honestly, my hat's off to you. Uh, there, are, there are so many other things you could be doing with your time, and to spend this much time in scripture, honestly, the, the more chances I get to meet you at firesides or at grocery stores or wherever we bump into each other, uh, I'm consistent, consistently amazed that there are people like you out there that, that love the Word of God to the point of, well, putting their time where their, where their heart is. And, and I hope you speed up the clock at least a little bit. Uh, I, get, I can talk faster uh, online, but I am grateful for the chance that we have to spend such time together. Uh, and that holds true for this week. It was funny, last week as I was video editing, uh, I'd, I'd made all the slides with all the scriptures and I was putting those in and, and getting rid of my mistakes, which are many, uh, just doing all that post-production stuff. And I realized I skipped a couple verses in Genesis 19, which is shocking considering how much time we spent there. But it was one that I, that I just want to say really briefly because it's worth holding on to. And it's when Lot is on his way out, the angels have you know, grabbed him by the hand and said, you got to get out of here. But he goes and talks to his sons-in-law to be his daughter's fiancés. And he tells them, you got you to come with us. Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be destroyed for its wickedness. And, and the verse says that the, the sons-in-law looked at, at him as if he was mocking. Like, you're, you're kidding, right? Yeah, our whole city is going to be destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. Yeah, like that's a possibility. And they honestly thought he was kidding. Now, our, our humor can get in our way sometimes. First time I proposed to my wife, she thought I was joking. She didn't take it seriously. And I'm sitting there going, how can I convince you that I am in earnest, not in jest? Uh, well, I kept proposing for the next seven months uh, to prove it to her. And we'll talk more about that today as we talk about Rebecca and, and Isaac. But if we don't take serious things seriously, 
they can cause major problems. In fact, to me, it's the foil of what we saw in Sarah and her laughter. Sarah thought she was living a tragedy, but it was a comedy, complete with comic relief, namely Isaac, and an incredibly happy ending. Whereas these sons-in-law of Lot were living in a tragedy and thought they were living in a comedy. Interesting reversals there. Uh, it, it, the, our sins, and especially the consequences of those sins, if we don't repent, that's not a laughing matter. That is tragic. Now, if we repent and turn to the Lord, then He is able to, to turn the tables uh, and, bring, and bring joy out of sorrow, to bring laughter out of tears. And that's the story of Sarah. Okay? It's going to be the story of Rebecca today. But in some ways, Rebecca also is a, a trickster sort of character, as is her son Jacob, as we'll see. And many ancient cultures have, have a trickster character in a lot of their, uh, a lot of their stories. Uh, but to see, do we take serious things seriously? And do we find joy in sorrow uh, when we know that there's a happy ending when all is said and done? One other thing that's just been weighing on me, not, well, not weighing, just kind of gnawing on the corners of my mind this week is Lot's wife turning into that pillar of salt. And the more I've been thinking about it, salt is such a great symbol for preservation, right? Uh, you, ye are the salt of the world, the Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount. We're supposed to be salt. But as I was just pondering last week with with Lot and they're not being sufficient righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, not enough leaven to leaven the lump. Remember we talked about that and Lot gives unleavened bread because, sorry, we can't get the righteousness to rise here. I wondered, and not to say anything negative about Lot's wife because I don't know enough specifically about her to pass judgment and all that was going on in her mind and heart that drove her back towards Sodom. But the pillar of salt as a metaphor, I really wondered... As salt, we're supposed to be sprinkling our, our entire lives long. There needs to be a gradual salting of the earth, a gradual uh, flavoring of humanity with the kinds of examples that we can set for them. And if we haven't been spending a lifetime grain by grain leavening the lump or adding the salt of preservation, then no pillar of salt at the end will make a difference. You can't just dump it all in in some last second moment hoping that some incredible example will turn the tides. It needs to be a line upon line, precept upon precept, day by day, Zion caught up in process of time, sacrifice by sacrifice through a lifetime uh, of examples with Abraham and Sarah. Not just a one-time, let's dump as much salt in there as we can. Uh, I'm grateful for the drop-by-drop approach that that we learn with the ten virgins, for example. And I pray that we can salt the earth day by day. uh, Scripture study session by scripture study session. And I pray that that's the case for today as we add a few more grains. Now, we're going to be spending our time, like I said, with Rebecca and Isaac today second chapter, so to speak, in the three patriarchs and matriarchs. Uh, And chapter 24 is a long one, but a powerful one, because we get to see the covenant passed on to the next generation. Uh, Or specifically, how do we find the other half of this covenant couple? Uh, Covenant marriage is so key. We saw that as one of the struggles in in, uh, Noah's day. 
daughters of men and sons of God, or vice versa, daughters of God and sons of men? Are we, are we making covenant couples? Well, chapter 24, verse 1, we'll see how important this is to Abraham in order to pass down the, the baton to the next generation. So 24, verse 1, Abraham was old, well stricken in age, that, that same stricken word, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. I hope that when we look back on our lives, we can say something similar. No matter how stricken we get, we can see God's hand has been with me and he has prospered me throughout my life. Verse 2, Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. Now this sounds really weird. Uh, Joseph Smith translation corrects that to hand. So put your hand under my hand and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. So again, from the very beginning of this chapter, we see that as, as Abraham is looking back at his life, he's also looking forward at the life of his posterity. Remember, seed is the, the, the foundational promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And as long as that seed is faithful, then promised land and priesthood power will be passed down through the generations. But like I said, that requires a covenant partner in this. Uh, patriarchal priesthood requires matriarchal priesthood, right? And so to see Abraham found his Sarah, now who's Isaac going to find for himself? Well, Abraham actually turns to his most trusted servant. Remember back in chapter 15 when he's like, God, I'm not sure if you, it might be a little late for you to bless me with a son, but that's okay. I got your back. Uh, are you going to use Eliezer of Damascus, my steward, uh, as my seed instead. Remember, that's when God says, thanks, Abraham. Don't need your help, though. Uh, I got this. Well, Eliezer of Damascus, assuming it's the same person, is the oldest servant. He's the most trusted. He has responsibility for all that, God, all that Abraham has. And that's amazing to me. Do we trust our marriage to just anyone? Uh, or do we learn, turn to the Lord, who is God's eldest servant, over whom he has placed all authority and power. Uh, I, I love thinking of, of this steward in terms of a savior figure who is trying to help me keep my covenants, trying to help me find the, the, the connections that I need, the people that I need to meet, and the, especially the partner that I need to find to be able to perpetuate this covenant. Because honestly, it's one of the most important things that we can do in this life or one of the most important things we can hold out hope for in the next life, okay? Since, since that's a promise that, that can go beyond the veil of death. To understand the importance of covenant marriage, this is exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity, like we talked about. In thee and in thy seed, there's exclusivity. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed? That's inclusivity. But how do we find our, our covenant partner? Someone with whom I can be equally yoked, to borrow Paul's phrase, within the covenant. Someone through whom our children can be born within the covenant. To find that kind of an, an exemplary partner. Someone who can match Isaac in terms of covenant commitment. And that's Rebecca to a T. I have worked with young single adults for most of my, my career. And marriage is always on the mind, it seems. And often I've noticed that opposites can attract in so many different areas. 
But spiritually speaking, that's seldom the case. We tend to find someone with whom we can resonate, spiritually speaking. And sadly, I've seen sometimes when that's not the case, and, and a, an early married couple is one spouse is struggling with the other over spiritual things. And I'm like, did you guys not talk about spiritual things before you got married? It's like, ah, oh, it never really came up. I'm like, yikes, that's a problem. Uh, it needs to come up. It needs to be something that we focus on since marriage is not for this life only. It's meant to be eternal. Uh, and so notice how Abraham trusts his servant and what this servant does to find Isaac's covenant companion. Verse 5. The servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? So here you have Abraham's servant concerned about the, the other possibilities. I know you have faith here, uh, Abraham, but I, uh, I'm the one that has to do the work. Uh, and so what happens if it doesn't work? What if I can't find somebody that's willing to come back? Should I bring Isaac with me the second trip? Maybe he's more convincing than, you know, a young man ready to be married might be more convincing than, than an old man uh, that's just your servant. But more than just addressing the different contingencies that are out there, I do love the way he puts that. What if the woman is not willing to follow me? Because he recognizes already that her agency is going to come into play. That this is not, that this might be an arranged marriage, but it's not a forced marriage. And so what do I do if she, if she says no? Uh, I hope that we understand just how important the other person's agency is in marriage. Uh, I hope that we take that in terms of if the other person exercises their agency poorly, I hope you realize that that's not on you. If your spouse has made decisions that, that might stand in the way of a covenant connection, uh, that's their decision and it isn't yours and you won't be held responsible for it. Also, when entering a marriage, realize that it's not, that my agency can't trump the agency of the other person. Like I said, when I first proposed to my wife, I felt very, when I first met her, uh, I, was, I was smitten. Uh, it wasn't the case uh, in reverse. Uh, and it was interesting to see the, the process unfold as we began to date. You see, I was teaching at the MTC at the time. Uh, I taught a district, it was my second district if I remember correctly. Eight elders, four sisters, and one of those sisters looked at me after about a week and she said, Hermano Alverson, do you know my sister? Uh, she teaches here at the MTC, and I'm like, oh, I don't think so. And she, where does she teach? Oh, she teaches French. I'm like, oh, no, we, we only associate with Spanish and Portuguese. But I said, why do you ask? And she said, because I think you're going to have to marry her, which blew me away, thinking, wow, okay, that's my first impression of this girl I've never met. I'm supposed to marry her? Sounds like an arranged marriage, uh, just, like, just like Isaac's would end up being. Well, I remember when I, everything that I taught this district of missionaries on, on, how to help people make commitments. She used right back on me. I thought, you can't do this. I, I, I made you. <laughs> yeah, I created a monster, honestly. Uh, but she was one of the best missionaries I'd ever taught. And so finally I relented and said, okay, I'll take out your sister. And that was the best decision I ever made. Uh, by the time that that sister missionary returned from her mission, I wasn't just her ex-MTC teacher. I was now her brother-in-law. Uh, and it was interesting to see just how how intent on marriage I became once I met Emily, my wife. Like I said, she didn't feel the same, but I made sure to honor that feeling. Because as I had been praying and, and seeking divine direction on all of this, 
I really felt the Spirit confirm, this is the perfect type of person for you. Would you be happy if you married Emily? Oh, you better believe you would. But that doesn't mean two revelations for the price of one. And I understood that, and I made sure that Emily understood that as well. I see, I remember the first time I brought it up, we were, we've been dating for a while now, and I was at her apartment after the end of a date, and I was leaving that night, and, and I said to her, you know, what do you think about praying about our relationship and seeing where it, where it goes? And, and ironically, she said, oh, I don't want to pray about it. And I'm like, what? Why would you not want to pray about us? And she said, well, because God's probably going to say no, and as soon as it's, I know it's wrong, then I have to break up with you, and, and I like you. I wasn't sure how to take that. <laughs> I'm like, is that good news? You don't want to break up with me? That's good. But bad news? You don't think God wants us to be married? Yikes. Well, I was getting up to leave, uh, and as I you know, grabbed the, door, uh, the doorknob and was on my way out, I said, well, you know, you're right. He might say no. But wouldn't it be better to know now than later when it would only be harder to break up? And then with like one foot out the door, I turned back and said, and you never know. God might tell you what he told me. And then I smiled as the, the blood drained from her face. She's like, she realized what I just hinted at. She's like, whoa, 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 wait, we need to talk, don't we? I'm like, uh-huh. And so I left uh, and left her stewing on that. But the next day as we, as we came back together, just to explain to her the experiences that I had been having and to clarify uh, very seriously that my revelation does not count as your revelation, nor does it obligate you to honor my revelation, because I have no uh, stewardship for you. I have no responsibility. My, my revelation, it cannot be two revelations for the price of one. Maybe you're the perfect person for me, and I'm not the perfect person for you. Maybe I'd be really happy with you, and you wouldn't be really happy with me. And so, if you got a no from God, it would break my heart, but it wouldn't break my faith. It would be devastating, but it wouldn't be a doctrinal dilemma because I understand that God could tell you no, and he could tell me yes. And like I said, emotionally, I'd be, I'd be shambled by that, but spiritually speaking, that would be okay. Uh, you just need to find out for yourself. And I love the thought on Eliezer's part. What if she's not willing to follow? I understand she is an agent, not an object. And we have to understand that, not just in courtship and proposing, but throughout our marriage. This is not someone that just happens to be, oh, my object. Uh, it is, this is an independent agent that has chosen to yoke themselves with you. And we need to, we need to respect that and honor that. Now, verse 6, Abraham responds to that question. He says to his, his steward, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. In other words, no. If, if you come home empty-handed, that's one thing. But do not bring my son back there. Uh, this is our promised land, and we need to stay. And I know what it's like to be raised among idols and idolatry. And I don't want my son to have to make those difficult decisions. So keep him here. There is something to be said. Like I said, opposites can attract in a lot of different ways. And if you end up marrying someone that is dissimilar to you, spiritually speaking, the question becomes, who will change? You or your partner? And I think it's wise of Abraham to see, no, if my son is on this high spiritual level and you have to find someone out in the world on an equally high spiritual level, if she won't come, don't bring, because she's in this environment, for example, on a low spiritual level, 
don't bring my son down to that level just to be able to find a partner because it wouldn't be a covenant companion then. There's something to be said for maintaining your high standards even if it takes you longer to find that blessing. It will be within the confines of covenant, don't worry, okay? Keep shooing away the birds of prey and, and keep progressing down the path. It's not on the sides, it's just further ahead. Keep on, keep on progressing. But whatever you do, don't move in their direction. Don't go downhill to find a spouse. Trust that God will, will continue to raise and lift people. Go out and raise and lift people yourself. Uh, but make sure they're on your same spiritual level and that it's a, a high one, a covenant one. Well, verse 7. Abraham continues his counsel here. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house. So he removed me from those kinds of influences. I don't want you to just bring uh, Isaac back into them. Who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred. So again, we're only moving forward. We're not going back which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. So again, we're trying to connect posterity and promised land here. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. This is that cloud of smoke. This is that pillar of fire that walked between the, the, the cut covenant that Abraham had laid out. Follow him, as I've been trying to do. I followed him out of my ancestral homeland, to this promised land. I followed him away from my fathers, toward the blessings of the fathers. And that same God will send his angel to guide your steps as well. Trust him on that. And that's exactly what this servant will do. And then Abraham repeats himself, verse 8. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, again, she's an agent, not an object, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. Helpful for this steward to realize he's only responsible for his actions, not the other person's reactions. We invite and then we honor agency. That's the key in missionary work. It's the key in parenting. It's the key in interpersonal relations. It's definitely the key in marriage. So do your part, steward, and we'll trust the other person to decide to do theirs. So verse 9, the servant was okay with all of that. He puts his hand under the thigh, oh, JST, hand, under the hand of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. And then it's, go, it's time to go fulfill this mission. Verse 10, the servant took 10 camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. Now, if you're about my age or older, perhaps you were raised on Johnny Lingo, just like I was. And it, Johnny Lingo is famous for, for finding Mahana and realizing that she is an eight-cow woman. Uh, and recognizing just how, how worth, how, what, what her value is, her worth, uh, which she hadn't recognized herself. Well, if eight-cow woman is one thing, how about a ten-camel wife? And that's exactly what Rebecca will be. Uh, this steward goes with his ten camels. Again, he has responsibility for everything. All his master's goods are in his hands. And that what, that's what God is trying to entrust in us. Remember the oath and covenant of the priesthood. Priesthood that requires a patriarchal, matriarchal partnership. All that the Father hath shall be given unto you. That's the culminating blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And so here again, hints to that. 
a steward with all that his master has in his hand, is looking for a covenant companion uh, for the son of his master. Well, verse 11, he made his camels to kneel down without the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. Now, here's a man who knows, <laughs> who knows where to look. He goes to the well because I know everybody eventually has to come here. I'll go in the evening because that's the best possible time to meet someone since in the cool evening hours it's, it's not quite as, much, as, as painful to do all of the work of, get, of gathering the water. I always joke about this with my institute students saying if you want to find the right kind of person then be in the right kind of place at the right kind of time. And I know I'm biased but I think institute is one of those. I think church is one of those. I think opportunities to serve others is one of those. Where will I find someone that is worth covenanting with? Well, often it's going to, if I'm on the covenant path, and if that other person is on the covenant path, then perfect way for the two to become one and to continue walking that path together. I remember as I was praying uh, over my own relationship, often asking God, I just don't want to mess this up. And I know I can't control Emily's agency. And so will you just lead me by the hand, please, so that I don't mess this up on my own? And at the same time, will you please lead her by the hand? Every once in a while, I would add with a bit of a, a smile. And if you happen to bring those two hands together and put hers in mine, I'm totally okay with that. But again, honoring agency, just please guide us both. I, I, there is something powerful about this, this well of living water, perhaps. At evening, when you're trying to just find who, who's the right kind of person to walk the covenant path with me. Well, verse 12. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. We don't know enough about this man. Now, if it is Eliezer of Damascus, Damascus, is this someone that, you know, remember the souls that Abraham had won along the way? Is this some convert as Abraham's been making his journeys? Well, whatever his origin story, at this point, he does recognize Jehovah as a God worth praying to. God of my master, Abraham, I pray thee, Send me good speed today. And I love the way he phrases at the end, show kindness unto my master Abraham. This phrase has come to mean a lot more to me since I've become a parent. And as I look at my children, those little, those little humans that have a piece of my heart within them <laughs> to do with as they please, I look at their friends with such gratitude. And those that hurt my children, it can't help but hurt me too. Uh, when I see someone, especially when my children were new, as we moved to Utah, for example, or they're new in an area, and I just come to meet people that show them kindness or love, I am so grateful for that. Because that is a kindness that God has shown to me. Because he knows that I love those children of mine. Well, none of my children are married yet. And I'm thankful for that, honestly. Uh, I don't know how that's, going to, how that's going to feel. It's like, hmm, are you worthy of my child? Uh, I, I hope so. I have prayed for my children-in-law already. I've been doing that for a long, long time. Praying that God is preparing them and hoping that I and my wife are preparing our own children well enough in return. 
but that will be an incredible act of kindness when I see the Lord provide for my children someone with whom they can walk the covenant path together. Now, verse 13 and 14, he goes on in his prayer. And it's interesting how specific he gets here. Behold, I stand here by the well of water. So I'm in the right place. The daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. So I'm at the right time. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. Now notice what he's asking for. Thereby shall I know. That's everybody's question. How am I supposed to know when I found the right one? Right? That is the question. And in his case, well, how about this, Heavenly Father? I, I'm here, right place, right time, and when these women come to draw water from the well, I will ask them if I can have a drink. Now, laws of hospitality would suggest that every one of them is going to give me some, okay? Uh, they know that life and death uh, can hang in the balance as far as hospitality in the desert is concerned. But, above and beyond that, if she offers not only to give me drink, but to give my camels drink, Please let that be the way by which I'll know that this is the right one, the one you've chosen for Isaac. Now, some would call this sign-seeking, uh, and that's not how we should do it, okay? Uh, I'm going to dial numbers uh, at random, and whoever picks up the phone, let be, that be the one that I'm supposed to marry. Mm, good luck with that, okay? Uh, is it sign-seeking, though, on, on this steward's part? Or rather, instead of seeking signs, is he seeking attributes. Is he saying the covenant is all about sacrifice and service to others? If there was anything I learned from my master Abraham and Sarah, it was that. They were constantly being big enough to be small. They were constantly putting the needs of other people first. They were always willing to sacrifice their own needs, their own comforts, their own convenience in order to meet the needs of others around them. Now, if this wife-to-be of Isaac is going to step into that same kind of covenant, they're going to need to have the same kind of attributes. This will have to be a self-sacrificial saint who's willing to continue to do that. I don't want... Marriage isn't going to change people dramatically, necessarily. And so I need to have to find someone who's already willing to live that way without the added expectation of, well, you married into the family business. You have to be living into it yourself. No. Let her be part of the family business even before she's part of the family. And if I can see someone like that, wow, those kinds of attributes are exactly what Isaac will need. So that, with that prayer in mind, he moves forward with his plan. And in verse 15, it came to pass, before he had done speaking. How's that for, for immediately honoring his prayer of faith? That behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. Now, of course, Abraham's servant doesn't know any of that genealogy, but we do. And what do we know? Whoa, talk about a match made in heaven. 
This is the same family tree. This really is the family business. She might not know fully about it yet, uh, but she's a part. Because if Isaac is Abraham's son, Rebekah is Nahor's granddaughter. And Abraham and Nahor are brothers. Okay, so this is, wow, this is close. This is amazing. And, and the blessing comes right after Abraham's servant prays for it. Now, the word Rebekah, we know her name now. He, the Abraham's servant still doesn't. Rebekah comes from a Hebrew verb meaning to tie up. Some have considered her name like, meaning something like a knotted cord. Well, that's an interesting thing to name your child. But it can denote something captivating, something that ties you up, right? And she will be a truly captivating character in this story. Uh, as soon as... as Eliezer, Abraham's servant, sees what she does here. He's captivated. Like, this is perfect. Uh, another possible connotation of her name is this idea of a snare. And we'll see as she deals with, with her sons, Jacob and Esau, later on in today's lesson, some, some ensnaring going on as well. But also this idea of, of captivating, of tying up. It can be a matter of binding something. And to be bound within the covenant is exactly what she will be and want to be. Now, verse 16, as we begin to come to know Rebekah. The damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin. Neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. Now, there again is a Joseph Smith translation correction there. Instead of it being just, neither had any man known her, which would simply be a repetition of the statement that she was a virgin, so she's chaste, virtuous. Joseph changes it to, neither had any man known the like unto her. And that, to me, is so much more powerful. It's not just that she is pure, but she is, she's like no one I've ever met before. This is someone that people, there's no one quite like Rebecca, and we'll come to see that. In fact, in my own experience, when I, came to meet, to, when I came to know Emily, my wife, I could say the same. I had never known the like unto her. Uh, in fact, when we were dating, and it took a long time, I proposed for seven months before she finally relented. Okay, So persistence, my friends, it pays off. Uh, but I guess I'm an acquired taste. Uh, maybe that's why these lessons are so long. I know it takes that long for, for people to come to, to like, okay, maybe, maybe he says it's okay after all. Well, seven months. Uh, my wife finally agreed. In fact, she finally proposed to me. After a while, I said, you know, I can only take rejection so often. Uh, if you ever come to know that it's true, uh, that it's right, that, that God is giving you the green light, then propose to me. I'll say yes. And that's exactly how, how it happened. It was beautiful. Well, I remember getting a letter, though. Actually, my Emily got a letter from my mother uh, during that courtship stage where we weren't sure where this was going to go. And my, my mom said to Emily... Thank you for being a part of my son's life. Thank you for a lot of things. She said, I don't know where this relationship will go. Someday you'll either be my daughter-in-law or you'll be one of my son's ex-girlfriends. But whichever way it goes, and this is the part that my mom knew me well and was coming to know Emily well. She said, but whatever comes of this, thank you for proving to my son that the ideals of womanhood really do exist. That, I still treasure that phrase. 
And that is how I see my wife. I, I, to, that to me is Rebecca. People had never known the like unto her. And we'll see that as, as the story progresses. Verse 17. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. So he's acting on his plan. He's proactive. He's acting rather than just being wait, that waiting to be acted upon. And if we're going to pursue covenant relationships, then we, we better run to it as well. We better uh, be proactive here. And verse 18, sure enough, she said, drink, my Lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. Now, little did she know that if the story ended there, then the story would end there. She was merely being hospitable, which was a cultural norm. I did what was asked of me. What, what, what more is there? Well, there's always more that could be done beyond the bare minimum. And that's exactly what she does. Verse 19, when she had done giving him drink, she said, and this whole time I wonder if Eliezer is sitting there going, okay, wait for it, wait for it. She said, I will draw water for thy camels also. Whoa, he knows now. But notice this last phrase, until they have done drinking. So it's not just I'm not going to do the minimum, but I will do the absolute maximum. I'm not just going to go a little above and beyond and, and bring a few token pitcherfuls to be able to help your camels. No, I will, I will offer them water until they're done. I think sometimes we have a predetermined finish line on certain service. Uh, I can do it to this point and then no further. And there's something amazing about Rebecca here where there, there is no limit. I'll go as long as they need me to go. That sounds like parenting. That sounds like missionary work. It sounds like temple work. It sounds like keeping the covenant. And I don't know how long this will take. I don't know how much effort will be expected of me to help other people come into the covenant as well. But I'm here for the duration, as long as it takes. So in verse 20, she hasted. You notice how many verbs there are about speed here? She hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again unto the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. Now we're seeing a lot of detail here. Uh, we saw the idea of her going down to the well and then coming up. We see here there's a difference between the well and the trough. So there seems to be some distance here. I mean, in some ways it makes sense that the trough would be at least at some distance so that animals wouldn't be right next to the well to, to muddy the waters, for example, or to foul the, the water, or to just get in the way of people that are trying to work. So I don't know the distances here, but there seems to be a lot of exercise implied as she goes down and gets the, the pitcher full, and then comes up and then go, runs over and runs, right? Hastens the whole time. Runs to the trough and then runs back to the well. It goes down and then fills it back up and then runs and runs and back down and up. And how long? Ten camels until they're done. Now, I had some fun online trying to figure out how much a camel could drink. And I'm still confused because the estimates ranged widely. From somewhere like 20 gallons to, to 30 gallons. Some said like, oh, 50. And I'm like, are you? I don't know. I, that, I'm a little skeptical of that. But even if we go conservative and, and on the low end of the, of the scale, 20 gallons worth after these camels have walked all the way from... Hebron, where Abraham lives, all the way to Haran, 
uh, in North Mesopotamia. Wow. I bet they're thirsty. And so even if it's just 20 gallons each, that's 200 gallons. How big is Rebecca's pitcher? I have no idea. But all the running and descending and ascending and running back and dumping and refilling. Wow. I remember on my mission, it, there was a drought, which always was ironic because it rains like every day in Puerto Rico. I don't know. Infrastructure, maybe. But there was a, an area we were in where there would be one day on and one day off for water. So you always knew you had to plan. If there's water on Saturday, there's not going to be any on Sunday and so on. Well, there was a Sunday with a baptismal scheduled. And so uh, this baptism... The missionaries, we were in the same, the same ward or branch at the time, uh, my companion and I, and then this other companionship. And it was the, an investigator that they had been teaching that was just golden. I got to meet him and, and do the, the baptismal interview, and he had overcome all kinds of opposition in his, in his decision to join the church. And he was so excited about his baptismal date, uh, which was that coming Sunday. Now, uh, the, that was one of those weeks where it was sun, Saturday on and Sunday off for water. And so the missionaries wisely went to the chapel on Saturday and filled the font. Uh, and just, it'll stay there, just sit there overnight, and we'll have a full font for the morning. Well, they showed up to church on Sunday morning, we all did, and went to go double check, and there had been a leak in the plug. And so that night's, overnight, all of the, the water had drained out of the baptismal font. And we were devastated. The investigator was devastated. The, the thought of having to wait even longer for another day to be able to fill the font was just devastating for him because he had overcome so much to get to that point. Oh, one last piece of opposition, right? Well, down the hill, down the street from the church was a big uh, temporary water tower, a big water tank that the, the city had set up for the neighborhood if you needed water in an emergency and go, you know, fill a canteen, fill a water bottle, fill, fill something if you need to go flush a toilet or wash the dishes or whatever. Well, no one's crazy enough but enter, enterprising 19 and 20-year-olds. Okay, maybe that's why the Lord sends the young, okay? They're, they're impractical, and sometimes that's a really a good thing. And so the four of us said, we can fill the font. And we ended up getting, like, every trash can we could find from the chapel, making sure it was all clean, uh, and then going down, running down the street to this tank, filling up the trash can as much as it would go where we could still hold it. And then between the two of us, we would come sloshing back up the street uh, into the chapel and dump it out. And it would raise by a, a, a centimeter or so. And then we'd keep going back and forth and back and forth. There was a kind brother in the ward that was in a wheelchair. And he let us take his wheelchair. He let us pick him up and put him in a, a regular seat so we could at least move uh, trash cans full of water with his wheelchair. And as the other companionships were still sloshing their way up. By the time it was done, my, my white shirt and pants, uh, my, ch my church clothes were, were sopping wet. Uh, my fingers were so fatigued, I could bear, they were shaking as I was trying to play the, the piano for the opening hymn for the baptismal service. And the, the water level was maybe, maybe two feet deep, maybe a foot and a half, I don't even remember. It's like, well, you're skinny, and if you go down just straight as a board, then I think the water level will be just enough to immerse you. This was not the kind of baptism that would make it into a church video, okay? But he was baptized that day. Uh, again, stiff as a board, straight down, just kind of double-checking, like, yep, just made it under. 
full immersion, and then brought back up. And like I said, it was an incredible amount of work on the part of us missionaries. But we knew he was worth it. That the worth of souls was great in the sight of God. And uh, a wet or, or muddy suit, uh, no big deal. And, and tired fingers, oh, it'll get better. And, and I think of that experience when I see Rebecca with all of these trips, not just to feed or to, water, to give water to Eliezer, a fellow human being, but to his beasts of burden, until they had done drinking. Talk about above and beyond the call of duty. Well, no wonder verse 21 then. And the man wondering at her held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. I mean, this is an unrehearsed demonstration of character. This is service that leaves someone speechless. I love that description. He just sat there wondering, holding his peace. It's like, is this girl for real? Uh, is, I know I've been in the desert for a long time. Is this whole thing a mirage? <laughs> okay. I don't think so. Uh, she, I, I did really drink that water. And wow, my, my camels are really going to it too. But this girl just doesn't slow down. This is service with no upper limit. It's amazing. Now, verse 22, it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, finally, that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of 10 shekels weight of gold. And he says to her, whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? To me, there's something beautiful about that question. Whose daughter art thou? Not just, who are you? What's your name? But who do you come from? What's your family line? In the ancient Near East, that is huge. And especially if you're trying to find someone to share the covenant with, are you part of this covenant people? Are you willing to be? So, whose daughter are you? Is, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? That question, again, suggests extended family. When I was 17 years old, I received my patriarchal blessing. And among other things, when it talked about marriage, it's very clearly told me, you have to ask permission of your wife's family before you, before you marry her. Because this is not just two people becoming one, this is two families becoming one. And that has definitely been the case with my family and my wife's family. There's some beautiful unity there. And what's amazing to me is, well, I'll put it this way, as a 17-year-old kid, I thought, okay, I gotta get permission. I gotta ask my father-in-law. And I pictured in my mind this, oh, mahogany-lined office, you know, and sitting there with this, this serious, uh, father-in-law-to-be, I hoped, and him having just this kind of heart-to-heart, man-to-man, you know, how do you intend to provide for your family, and will you take good care of my daughter, and all these kinds of things. Well, when I first came to meet Emily and realized this is the girl I want to spend eternity with, well, what, what's your family like? And like I said, I'd already met her younger sister in the MTC. Uh, amazing first impression to an incredible family. I met another younger sister that was a roommate at the time. And again, I thought, wow, this, this family's incredible. Three for three. I met her older brother, four for four. And the more I started meeting, uh, she's one of 10 children. And as I met them all, it's like, this is an incredible family. Whose 
daughter art thou? I, I got to meet this set of parents that have raised such incredible kids. Is there room in your father's house for me? Uh, and I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. Uh, Covenant-wise, is there a, connect, a possible connection here? Because I know I'm joining your family, not just connecting myself to you. Well, we went back to California. I'm from Southern California. She's from Northern. And I went to meet her parents. Uh, we still weren't sure where this was going to go. This was still part of the, the seven months of proposing. But I thought, oh, this, the answer can come at any time. So I better make sure I get permission now before it gets any further. And I remember the, the day I was going to ask was the day we were going to drive back to Utah to get back to school. And the weight of the world was on my shoulders. And no wonder I waited for the last minute. But I went and played church basketball with my father-in-law. That's, a, I guess, a good way to make first impressions. And as we were coming back into the house, he was kind of barking out orders to the rest of the kids, going, okay, Jared and Emily are heading back to Utah, so say your goodbyes. I'm just going to jump in the shower, and then we'll get some chores done, and, and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, whoa, whoa, wait. We're, he thinks we're leaving immediately, and, and he's jumping in the shower. Um, I've got to talk to him right now. I don't have time for, to wait for, to, for some some serious moment, um, it, it's serious and it's go time. So I went to turn to, to ask him and he didn't realize what I was, what was on my mind or on my, in my heart. And so he just turned to walk into the master bedroom, not knowing he was about to be followed. Now, I, that was not my intention, but I thought it has to happen. And fortune favors the bold, so here we go. And so I followed him into the master bedroom thinking, what am I doing? Well, I was still so speechless, like, oh, how do I start this conversation, that he didn't know he was being followed. And like he said, he was going to go take, jump in the shower, so he walked into the master bathroom. I'm like, this is not what I pictured. Well, I'm this far. Let's go for it. And so I followed him into the master bathroom. Uh, his wife was in there folding laundry, and all of a sudden she looks up, sees her husband, no big deal, but then sees me following him, and her jaw dropped, which alerted him to the first time, I'm being followed here. He wheeled around, and, I, and here the three of us are in the master bathroom, as I'm feeling super awkward, like, <laughs> love the towels. Um, and then I stumbled through this awkward, brother and sister Stoddard, I sure love your family, uh, one member in particular. Um, if, if this ever works, uh, if she ever gets her answer, uh, do I have your permission? And they both just busted out laughing. Uh, and they were like, sure, good luck. Uh, be patient. She's worth the wait. Uh, if it works, if she says yes, then of course we say yes to. And we still joke about that. I mean, to this day, it's been, our anniversary is later this week and we've been uh, married for 23 years now. And to this day, my, when, uh, when I'm visiting my father-in-law, sometimes he'll say, Jared, anything important we need to talk about? I mean, the bathroom's open. We can, we can head right in, and I'll never live it down. I, I'm actually surprised my patriarch didn't laugh if he happened to see that in vision uh, when he gave me that part of the blessing. Like, you have to ask permission, because this is going to be hilarious. Uh, well, whatever it is, I, there, there is truth in that part of my blessing that two families are becoming one here. So I do love the way Eliezer of Damascus asks the question. Whose daughter? Is there room in your father's house? That, honestly, that was one of the most clear confirmations I received as far as the important or the, the, the rightness of, of our marriage was, was praying not just should I marry her, but realizing through the Holy Ghost, I'm supposed to be part of this family and they're supposed to be a part of mine. It's a powerful thing. 
whole family trees are beginning to grow together with roots and branches beginning to intertwine. Remember the purpose of the earth was to create a forest of family trees? Well, pay attention to merging families here. Well, back to the story. Verse 24. She said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bare unto Nahor. And remember, Nahor is Abraham's brother. And, and that's all that, that Eliezer needs to know. It's like, oh, this is perfect. 25. She said, moreover unto him, we have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. So again, above and beyond. He only asked about lodging. Well, how about room and board? Uh, come and we'll, we, I gave you a drink, but I know you're probably hungry too. So come and we'll give you food. And since it's, it's probably not you that I'm thinking about when I mention straw, the, all these wonderful camels of yours, I've, I've grown to love them through all this self-sacrificial service. So I'll make sure there's straw and provender enough for them too. In response, verse 26, the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So he knows what this means. Wait, you're, you're whose child? You're whose grandchild? <laughs> God, you are even kinder than I could imagine. And so he worships God. And I love the way he said it. I was in the way in the right way. And so the Lord led me. I was a receiver in high school in a year of college. And as a wide receiver, it was all about being in the way and on the same page as my quarterback. We called a play and I was supposed to be in a certain place at a certain time and hopefully would be open and ready to, to, to catch the ball. And as long as I was in the way, the right way, Typically with, with football, the quarterback has to throw it even before he knows that the receiver is going to be there. But if they're on the same page, and if you're following through on that play, then you'll be in the right place, and the ball will come. I learned that a lot on my mission, where if I planned in advance and told the Lord where I intended to be the next day, and if I had gained his trust, as a receiver, you have to have the quarterback's trust, or he's not going to throw you the ball even if you are open. But I had tried to prove to the Lord throughout my mission, I will open my mouth and make sure I give people the opportunity to exercise their agency. I will invite every chance that I get. And so knowing where I'll be tomorrow and knowing that I will try to do thy work in thy way, please put, me, put people along my path that I can meet. We actually had a miraculous experience when we were opening an area and and we didn't know anybody. We were just kind of starting from scratch. There had been some work done previously. So there was an old area book and we didn't know what else to do besides tract and street contact. But we went through and saw some old former investigators and thought, well, maybe they're interested now. They weren't, they didn't follow through uh, when they first met the missionaries, but maybe now's a better time. And I remember one day we were planning for the next day. We looked on the map, saw where these things were and uh, wrote down a bunch of addresses and, and names to go talk to. Well, we drove to that part of town, according to the map, and as we look at the street signs, we realized that all the names were different than what had been on that early map. We thought, we're dead. Now we don't, we know this is the general vicinity, but we, we can't find these people based on their address. Well, that stinks. Well, my companion and I, he was a greenie, I was training him, and, and what do we do now? I said, well, when in doubt, 
tracked. <laughs> so we're just going to track. We're just going to street contact. We don't have anything else planned. We don't know anybody here. Well, we started walking down the street and we saw this guy kind of sitting uh, in his doorway and, well, open your mouth. It shall be filled. So I'm like, hey, buenos dias. And we struck up a conversation and he said, hey, yeah, I've got some friends over, but yeah, you come in. Uh, we'd like to hear you. And he was a kind of a young single adult age, a little bit older than us, but not far. And so it felt friendly. We went in and sure enough, there's a room full of people around his age. And we started teaching them the, the gospel. By the end of the discussion, we asked, is there anyone that we, we'd love to teach you all, anyone that would like to continue learning? And this guy said, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Most of the friends said, no, nah, I'm not. But one girl said, actually, yeah, this is amazing. I'd love to, I'd learn, love to learn more. Uh, and so we got her name and her address uh, and so on, set up an appointment. Well, we left and we were walking uh, down the street. And I remember looking back at my plan for the day and the names of the former investigators that we had hoped to meet that morning. And sure enough, the girl we had just met, the friend who had come over that day at that time, she was that former investigator. We found out later when we went back to teach her, like, had you ever met with missionaries before? So, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the same guys. Uh, that Your story sounded a little familiar, and it was amazing. I just want to learn more. And it was one of those jaw-drop moments as a, as a young missionary thinking, Heavenly Father, how'd you do that? And I picture him going, uh, omnipotence makes it a little easier for me. I knew where you'd be. You planned it. I knew you wanted to meet her. And because you were in the way, and I trusted you, I just made sure she happened to be along your path. Uh, there in the home of someone that was just visible enough to test you. Will you speak to them? Thank you for passing that test. Uh, thank you for looking for ways to make a difference. And then I made the ultimate difference by making sure you found exactly the person you were looking for that day. I still look back at that as just a sweet miracle, uh, evidence of the hand of God, because we were in the way and the Lord led us, just like Abraham's servant. Now, verse 28, the damsel ran, told them of her mother's house, these things. So Rebecca runs back, tells her brother Laban about this. We're going to need to remember him because he factors big time next week when it comes to uh, Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And then Laban runs out to meet this man. Kind of cool that he's just been waiting there by the well. Well, you go home, and again, I'm trying to honor agency here, and you said there's straw and provender enough, but let's make sure we're not imposing upon your family. I'll just stay here at the well, go back and make sure that that's the case. Uh, they come back. And sure enough, Laban meets him and says, oh, come, 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 come. This story I've heard from my sister is, is amazing. So 31, Laban says to him, come in, thou blessed of the Lord. Wherefore standest thou without? Come on, you know, uh, I was going to say Southern hospitality. You know, Mideastern hospitality. I have prepared the house and room for the camels. Are we doing that? Are we inviting others in? Are we pressing upon them greatly like we learned from Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah? Have we prepared the house of God, the church, our ward, to receive them. Is there straw and provender enough? I hope so. Verse 32, And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels, and gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the men's feet that were with him. There's a lot of he's and him's and, and his's in there. Uh, it's hard to see the antecedent of those pronouns. Are we talking about Laban, or are we talking about Abraham's servant? And it seems like the man came into the house, there's Abraham's servant, 
And he, Laban, ungirded Abraham's servants' camels and gave straw and provender for the camels. Again, he's the one that owns it, right? It's his house. And water to wash his feet. So again, it seems like this is Laban now serving Abraham's servant and the men's feet that were with him. So it sounds like Laban is, is similar to Rebekah in terms of just trying to go above and beyond and make sure that we're caring for people's needs. Verse 33, And there was set meat before him to eat, before Abraham's servant, that is. But he said, I will not eat until I have told mine errand. And so Laban says, Speak on. In a way, this reminds me of Jacob's well, where Jesus is there with a Samaritan woman, and he's thirsty, and so let down your pitcher and give me to drink. Uh, his apostles have already gone into the, the town to try to find food. And, and when they come back with the food, remember what Jesus says, Oh, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. God has fed me richly, because my meat is to do the will of my Father who sent me. And rather than eat your literal food, I will feast upon God's spiritual food. And do his work in his way. And that's exactly what Abraham's servant is doing. I, yeah, yes, you, you, I am hungry, believe me. But I'm more hungry to do my master's will. And so I'm not going to eat until I have performed my mission. Verse 34, he begins to share his message. He said, I am Abraham's servant. Who cares about my name? You don't need to know that. More important than who I am is whose I am. And so I am a representative of Jesus Christ, a missionary would say. Elder Halverson, uh, take it or leave it. But I represent the Lord. Eliezer, uh, who cares? I'm Abraham's servant. Verse 35, the Lord hath blessed my master greatly. He has become great. Are we bearing witness of our master? Or are we spending too much time talking about ourselves? Verse 36, and here he begins telling his entire story. It's long. It goes from 36 to 48. And if we've already read the beginning of this chapter, there's so much repetition here. I'm not going to repeat it all. But what I love about it is it's so true to the account that we've just read that here is his, this servant giving a faithful narrative, bearing a true testimony. This is the experience that I've had. This is what I came seeking. This is what I prayed for at the well. Your daughter came, and, or your sister both, uh, came and, and blew me away because it was exactly what I asked for. Not the sign, but the attributes. And talk about a great soul being able to marry into a great family. It blows me away. Now, in comparing the actual events as they're transpiring, to Eliezer's description of those events. Like I said, it's incredibly parallel, but there are just a couple of differences that I think are worth pointing out. For example, when he refers to Abraham first commissioning him with this. Back in verse 7, Abraham had said to him, The Lord God of, of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, he shall send his angel before thee. We saw that already. Now when he's explaining this story to Rebekah's family, he says, Abraham told me, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel before thee. So it's the same idea of the angel will, will lead the way and God will send him. But the way he describes it, I love this second memory. The Lord before whom I walk. The way we saw it first was the Lord that took me from my father's house. So all of those upheavals, all those times he was uprooted and moved forward, that was just walking before the Lord. 
That was him, the pillar of fire and cloud of smoke, go, passing through that covenant path and me just going hand and, uh, in hand along with him. Are we walking before God? In fact, some other translations of that phrase from, from other Bible versions. The NIV says, before whom I have walked faithfully. The New Living Translation, in whose presence I have lived. The contemporary English version, I have always obeyed the Lord. Or the International Standard Version, the Lord who is with me wherever I go. Those are beautiful phrases to describe the covenant relationship between God and Abraham. But now that he has given this faithful narrative, now that he's borne a true and complete testimony, verse 49, he says, Now if ye will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, again, I'm amazed by Abraham's servant. He goes immediately. He runs. Uh, he hastens. He's praying for God's direction. He's trying to make sure he's being led by God in the right way. Uh, he, I mean, no wonder Abraham trusted him with all that was in his hand. In fact, no wonder that Abraham had suggested him to God as a worthy replacement and a possible heir for the Abrahamic covenant if he never ends up having seed, literal seed of his own body. This Eliezer of Damascus is an incredible figure. Uh, and in fact, in some ways, I'm even more impressed that he would be so serious about finding Isaac a covenant companion, since in some ways Isaac took his place. You mean I had the chance to be Abraham's heir instead of simply his servant till this punk kid was born? I remember Ishmael's feelings and mocking the, you know, the, the, the young, young, the toddler uh, Isaac. Well, not Eliezer of Damascus. I will forever do my master's work as his servant. I don't need to be his heir. Well, I think if we'll similarly serve the Lord, we'll become his heir, not because that's what we were seeking, but because that's what he offers us all. Uh, I'm amazed that he, well, like his master, Eliezer was big enough to be small. Put someone else first, and he does. But notice again the way he puts that phrase in 49. If ye will deal kindly and truly with my master. What he's getting at is just tell me, what, tell me your decision. Because if this is a no-go, don't string me along. Don't lead me along with some kinds of false hopes, because that's just going to waste my time, and I don't have that much. Neither does my master back home. We've got to move forward on this mission. So, I mean, again, back to the mission field. Wasn't it frustrating sometimes when people would just kind of lead you along and pretend to be interested in the church just because they felt sorry for you? All these poor boys, poor girls, they're out there just beating the pavement and, and trying to knock on doors and share their, their message. Uh, well, I have no interest in listening, really, but at least I'll bring them in off the street. Well, back to his adverbs. You were dealing kindly, but you weren't dealing truly. And best case scenario, we treat people with both kindness and truth. This in some way, it, it's amazing to me. Uh, I'm always talking about proving contraries, right? Well, here's one, kindly and truly. Can we do both? This, in fact, is the equivalent of what Paul says to the Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. So from a speaker's standpoint, I've got to tell you like it is. I need to speak 
the truth, but I've got to do it in love so that it doesn't come across as, as harsh or mean-spirited, even though it's true. The truth can hurt sometimes. And so let me do this loving, as lovingly as possible. Well, if that's from the giver, well, what about the receiver? And what's amazing about Eliezer here is he's the receiver and he's asking for the same kind of treatment. Please be true with me and please be kind. I think it's interesting that sometimes as we err on, in one side or the other, we end up, someone's either kind to us, but it's untruthful. Or they're true to us, but it's unkind. And I think we need to do a better job in both giving and receiving that we speak the truth in love and that we hope the other person will as well. Uh, like I said, with those missionary examples, I bet we've all had experiences where, well, I'll put it this way. Thank you for the truth. You didn't have to be so mean about it. You could have said that a little more kindly than you did. But also, thank you for your kindness, but I wish you had been telling me the truth. I know you were worried about my feelings, but the short-term kindness led to a long-term hurt because it wasn't true. We need to balance both. Be kind and be truthful and hope others are as well. Well, verse 50, then Laban, Rebekah's brother, and Bethuel, Rebekah's father, answered and said, the thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. In other words, well, it's obviously God's will. I mean, the exact blessing you were asking for happened. The fact that we're all extended family. I mean, this is a match made in heaven, obviously. And so it's not up to us to say yes or no. It's like we basically don't even have any choice in the matter. At least that's a way that some translators have approached that verse. I also wonder, though, if there's something else we can gather from that. It's this thing, this specific coming together, it proceeds from the Lord. Now, whether ultimately this proves right or wrong, good or bad, I, I can't say. Now, in their case, it was more of the, well, obviously this is right, so we're going to go forward, because that's what they say in the next verse, in 51. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go. Let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord hath spoken. So, obviously, this is the right thing. But in our own experience, I wonder about that other possibility. I know God is in this thing, this moment. But will it, how will it turn out? I don't know. Will it ultimately prove right or will it ultimately prove wrong? I'm not sure. And like I said, that's how I approached Emily when I first started proposing. I know God is in this, in this relationship, uh, in our friendship, in what we're learning about each other and about ourselves. I don't know if this is going to lead to marriage or not. Like I said, I, you're, the, you're the perfect kind of person for me. Maybe I'm not the perfect kind of person for you. I can't say yes or no or, or good or, or bad here. But I know right now it's good and that I'm doing what the Lord would have me do. And if he leads me in a different direction later or if he leads you in a different direction later, then I'll keep trusting him. I'll still try to be in the way. I'll still go hand in hand. But right now I'm do, I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. As I talk with young people and not just young, I think sometimes we have a spiritual experience and we are so grateful for it, but we might misinterpret its ultimate outcome. 
we can rest assured that we're that God is with us right here, that this thing proceedeth from the Lord. But what will the ultimate result of it be? I, I don't know. Let me give you one example that might make this a little more concrete. I've said this before. When my wife and I were first married, we wanted to have children immediately. Because like I said, it took me so long to convince her I was worth marrying that we didn't want to wait on, on children. But God had a different plan. And we, month after month, still no children. And like I've said before, my wife was Relief Society president in a married student ward where everybody was having kids left and right except us. And that was hard for her. Until this one day where she just had, she was praying about it as she always did. She was worrying about it as she often did. She was just hoping and against hope, believed in hope and was praying for that miracle to come. And she said she felt this overwhelming The Lord just embraced her. The Spirit filled her and just reassured her that all would be well. It was such a powerful experience for her that she just knew this is our month. We're going to be pregnant. I know it. Ah, I just felt such a a peace, such a reassurance. This is, I'm, I'm expecting. Well, within a few days, it became painfully obvious that she wasn't and chalk it up to another month of failed hope. And at first she really wrestled with the experience that she had just had a few days earlier. But I thought you said we were going to have a baby. And I pictured the Lord saying, well, you will eventually. But that's not what I was saying. In fact, what was I saying? I was letting you know that I am here. That I'm aware of you. I'm aware of your circumstances. I'm aware of your hopes. I'm aware of your fears. Believe me, I have come down to see, like we talked about last week. And in my perfect empathy and my perfect understanding, and in my perfect knowledge of what was about to come just a few days later, I needed you to know in advance that I'm here with you. I needed to fill you with reassurance Not because your prayer was about to become reality, but because your prayer was about to be answered not in the way you had hoped. And instead of you shaking your fist heavenward, I needed you to know that I'm here and always have been and always will be. Like I said, I think sometimes we mistake I'm here for This is all going to work out just the way I expected. And sometimes we're setting ourselves up for heartbreak when we take a spiritual experience and jump to conclusions that weren't necessarily implied by the experience itself. I I hope that makes sense. Can we say, this thing proceedeth from the Lord? And I'm just going to keep following him. And I don't know where it will eventually go. But right now I know I'm in his hand. And that's a good place to be. It's the best place to be. Verse 52 then. It came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words. And again, it was go, take her, go. We know God's in this. He worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. He gave God thanks first. And then he proceeds to give Rebekah's family riches. 
53, the servant brought forth jewels of silver, jewels of gold, raiment, gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. He gives before he takes. What can I contribute to your family? Since we are, these two families are now becoming one. Verse 54 then, and they did eat and drink, he and the men that were with him, and tarried all night. And they rose up in the morning and he said, send me away unto my master. Notice in that verse, he finally has a chance to eat. Uh, I've performed my mission and it's been a successful one. So yeah, bring out the food. I'm starving. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me actually of uh, the Savior's apostles. It said in the New Testament accounts that Christ was so busy, always surrounded by people needing to be taught and blessed and healed, that, people were, that the apostles were so busy they couldn't even find time to eat. Well, it's in that context that the story of the, the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. That's the loaves and the fishes. And what amazes me about that story is like, you want to eat? Fine. Then feed others. And there'll be enough leftovers for you, believe me. I, I think there's something to that. And so Abraham's servant finally eats only after performing his master's work. And then as soon as the next morning comes, it's send me to my master. I, I ran here. I got to run home. I know there is more of my master's work yet to be done. Verse 55, her brother and her mother said, let the damsel abide with us a few days, at least 10. After that, she shall go. But the servant, again, urgency, responds, hinder me not. Seeing the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. I love this about him. No, the work is I, I, on to my next mission. It's time to keep, get up and keep going. I need to return and report and then find out what my next set of marching orders is. So don't hold us back. He's a guy that it's all about let's get down to business, let's take care of business, and then let's get back to business. And I, and I do respect that about Eliezer of Damascus. Well, 57, they said, well, we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. So they honored her agency just like this Abraham's servant was. That is something we need to hold on to when we talk about Rebecca. We'll see more of this later on. She is, like we said, she is an agent, not an object. And that's important to realize in a time period, in a culture, where we just assume that patriarchy would, demeans woman to the place of objectification. But I love how this servant doesn't objectify her. The family doesn't objectify her. Let's honor her agency and inquire at her mouth. So they do. And then 58, they called Rebecca. They said to her, wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. Now here's a female equivalent to Nephi's, I will go and do the things that the Lord hath commanded. And what's amazing about her, her, her family's like, how about 10 days? She's probably going to need that long to, to gather her things or to make up her mind. Uh, I mean, you're a perfect stranger basically. And she's never laid eyes on Isaac. No, she, her, her indecision doesn't even last an entire verse, which suggests there's no indecision here. Let's ask her. Okay, I'm good. I'm going. And there's, to me, this same sense of, of decisiveness, of, of courage to step forward into the unknown, which is what had defined Abraham and Sarah for, with all of their, I will go, I will leave, I will follow the Lord's commands. Talk about a perfect match for this family. Rebecca is able to make momentous decisions 
pursue her destiny without having to think and rethink every potential contingency. I'm going to move forward with faith. I will go and do the things the Lord hath commanded. He's in this. We all know it. We can all see it. I don't need 10 days to make up my mind on that. Let's move forward. And so she does. That exercise of agency will be a defining characteristic of Rebecca. So hold on to it. So 59 and 60, they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men, and they blessed Rebecca. And notice the blessing. Thou art our sister. That's current identity. But how about your future identity? Be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. What a blessing, and what a perfect match for the Abrahamic covenant. Seed as the stars of heaven and the sands of the seashore. Well, thousands of millions is a pretty good start. Okay, And Rebecca, you will be the next Sarah, just like Isaac is the next Abraham. I also love the thought of, don't let your family go without blessing them first. Especially, I felt that from my own parents as we drove down to San Diego to be sealed in the San Diego temple. And after the sealing was done and just feeling my parents like, this is it, isn't it? This is that moment. For this cause shall man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. I was leaving mom and dad, and, and they blessed me. My whole growing up had been a blessing to me. But to just feel from them, have we done enough? Have we prepared you sufficiently? Have we blessed you so that you can now be a blessing moving forward? So Rebecca, before you leave us, can we bless you to be the mother, to, to live up to the covenant that you're about to enter into? So beautiful. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, what's, what's Isaac doing? Verse 63, Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. He's meditating. He is a contemplative type. We'll see the same set of, of Jacob, his son. But meditating, maybe thinking about the covenant and who am I about, about to connect with in this covenant? Is it... Is it my spiritual match? Can we be equally yoked? All these things are on his mind, and he sees the camel train coming. 64 then, and Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. She, she dismounted. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore, Rebecca took a veil and covered herself which suggests she didn't have it on before. There seems to be a pragmatic side to Rebecca. Uh, long journey on a camel train. Yeah, I think I'll take the veil off so I can breathe, okay? Uh, but who's that off in the distance? Oh, that's your husband-to-be. Oh, well, <clears throat> time to cover up uh, and, and approach him with the decorum and the, modest, the modesty, the respectful distance that dignity demands. Uh, I see both of those in her, and, and I love her for it. Then 66, the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. So here's return and report. Here again is give a faithful witness, bear a full testimony. 
And he's doing that to Isaac, just like he would have done to Abraham. We are seeing the responsibility shift to the next generation. Sure enough, 67, Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I, there again, I see a little glimpse into Isaac's personality. We, of the three generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it's Isaac we know the least about. But if he's out meditating at eventide, if he was mourning, just devastated over his mother's passing, if he is finally comforted after his mother's death because his wife has come to take that place within his heart, he does seem to be a very sensitive soul. Contemplative, close to his mother, not, not quite the wild man his brother Ishmael was described as. In some ways, not even like Abraham. It's always just, I'll go get, grab my trained servants and go on a commando mission to go rescue Lot. No, it's more of a, more of a homebody. Just staying at Sarah's tent, missing his mother, wondering who could possibly take his, her place, and then finding the exact answer to that question. Here is Rebecca. Like I said, Rebecca now becomes the new Sarah, and Isaac becomes the new Abraham. And there's some amazing parallels between that first couple and the second. Okay? We'll see one very quickly in this next chapter. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 1. Then again Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. Now we'll see in the next few verses that Keturah, now Abraham's plural wife, has, among others, a son named Midian. And so from Midian come the Midianites, and as we'll see in the book of Exodus, the most famous Midianite is Jethro. So even Jethro, through whom Moses receives his priesthood, can trace his lineage back to Father Abraham. This is still within the big umbrella of the covenant. Okay? And then Abraham, verse 5, gave all that he had unto Isaac. So despite having children through, through Hagar, namely Ishmael, despite having children through Keturah, Midian, and others, the, the covenant, the birthright, still passes down to Isaac. Now verse 6, he does give gifts to all those other sons. Okay? Their posterity also and deserves some of these promises, some of these possessions and prosperity. But he does send them off, okay? partly to begin to disseminate uh, knowledge of God to, uh, across the earth but also to give Isaac space that this is your promised land and your priesthood and your posterity that needs to dwell here. Now, in verse 7, Abraham then dies at age 175. It's described in verse 8. Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. I do love that description of death to be gathered unto your people. Those of us that remain behind on this side of the veil usually think of death as a departure. But think of those that have gone before and the death of this loved one is an arrival for them. We, they are being gathered to their people. You remember what caused Abraham to leave his fathers? Was the desire to receive the blessings of the fathers. And now he is finally joining those fathers that he had spent a lifetime trying to follow. Beautiful description. Verse 9 and 10 then, His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth. 
There was Abraham buried and Sarah, his wife. It is amazing to see funerals as a family reunion of sorts. I just went to one a few days ago and to see so many loved ones, so many friends from decades ago, all to rejoice in a life well lived, to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to to gather on this side, knowing there is a gathering taking place on the other. To me, there's something powerful about Isaac and Ishmael. The mocking has passed, at least for this moment. We see in our day still conflict between these two houses of Abraham, these two lineages. Perhaps the best way to honor your common ancestor is to come together in remembering him. That's what happens originally with Isaac and Ishmael. Now from 12 to 18, then, we see the posterity of Ishmael listed, which again, is, again says something about him, that he is still Abraham. Okay, uh, This is still part of the posterity that will, that will be like the stars of the heavens and the sands of the sea. And so there, the, the Ishmaelite posterity is listed in those verses. But then the narrative returns to the story of Isaac, since what we have in the, in the Old Testament is a chronicle of covenant. So verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And 21, Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, that sure went fast. We'll find out later that it's been 20 years of waiting, summed up in just those couple of phrases. The first thing we knew about Sarah was that she was barren. And then we got to know her for the incredible person that she was, not to be defined solely by something she lacked. In Rebekah's case, we get the reverse. We get to know her first, and we see just what an agent instead of an object she is. We see her courage. We see her decisiveness. We, we see her self-sacrificial nature. It's like this person is, I mean, hashtag life goals, right? This, this, this woman is, no one's known the like of her. I mean, this is jaw drop uh, beyond my, uh, my imagination. The ideals of womanhood really do exist. Well, man, she's got everything going for her. But only later do we find out, actually, her life is harder than we thought. And I hope we realize that when we see other people who seem to have it all together and seem to be have an unending stream of blessings from God. That great line from the hymn, In the quiet heart is hidden sorrows that the eye can't see. For some people, the first thing we know are their trials. And we need to get past those to realize what incredible stories they have to tell, what incredible lives they're living. Others, it's reverse. And we know the incredible life they're living. That's, that's the most obvious. We, we see it on social media. Well, look a little further. Or open your heart a little wider. And you will see struggles there, as was the case with Rebecca. But Isaac entreats God for her. There's something beautiful about praying for, not just praying that you, God will bless you with a, fa a family, but praying that God will bless those family members. 
And so Isaac entreats God for her. And God listened. I'm sure she was praying too, but there's something about a righteous couple joining their faith, joining their prayers, so that God can bless them. Now, like I said, this all happens in the same verse. We'll find out later. 20 years of waiting and entreating takes place. But then 22, now that she's expecting, the blessing that she's been waiting two decades for has finally come her way. But notice, this is one of my favorite verses in this whole chapter is 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, a couple things there. She went to inquire of the Lord. So in the previous verse, when it says that Isaac entreated God for her, again, she's an agent, not an object. So she's not just, honey, you do the, you, you're, the, you're the male in the family, and this is the patriarchy, and so you're the one that's connected to God. Will you go talk to him on my behalf? No, because here it's crystal clear. She has a direct line communication with God also. That was actually something my wife struggled with when she was Relief Society president, when everyone else was having kids and she couldn't, okay? Because she felt sometimes from sisters at the time, especially those that hadn't served missions, they would say, well, they'd have spiritual discussions in Relief Society and some of them would say, oh, well, that, the scriptures are my husband's department. He's the one that served a mission. And my wife was always like, well, whether or not you served a mission, the scriptures are your department. Di direct connection with God is your department. Uh, we need to be equally yoked here. And, and the vast majority of sisters that she served with were exactly that. And, and the others caught up quickly, okay? Uh, and so that, you see this in, in Rebecca. I, I have a question for God, but notice what the question was. If it be so, why am I thus? Now that seems really vague. What, what is she asking? I don't know for sure. But as I have wrestled with that phrase, what, what I've thought is, God, I finally, I'm finally pregnant. I finally have the blessing that I've been praying for 20 years to receive. Well, if the blessing's finally here, why is it so hard? Why is this so painful? Remember, these, she has two children within her and she doesn't know that yet. She will in just a moment. But the children are struggling together within her. They'll struggle together outside of her too. But here they are wrestling in the womb. And she's like, whoa, something's going on. I mean, I've never been pregnant before. I don't know if this is normal. And nobody's written what to expect when you're expecting yet. So I have no idea what to expect. Uh, but I don't know if this is normal. Um, it's painful. I, I don't want to lose this child. I, Heavenly Father, I finally got what I've been dreaming of. Why is it like this? And I think sometimes we all wrestle with that. God, I finally found the true church. How come I can't seem to make connections in my ward? I finally, close, closer to the, the story here, I finally got pregnant only to have a miscarriage? Or I finally have children, what I've always dreamed of, why is parenting so hard sometimes? My friends, there's reality. There's raw reality in Rebecca's question. And if you've ever struggled with the same thing, I know I'm doing the right thing. Then why is this so difficult? I know I'm on the covenant path. Where are the blessings I expected? 
I'm following God. Then why does there always seem to be tragedy in the train? Catching up to me. If it be so, why am I thus? But I challenge you, inquire of the Lord. And he can help you understand the purpose of your problems and the lessons that he's trying to teach you through your trials. It's exactly what God does for her here. Verse 23, the Lord says unto her, and again, this is an unmediated direct line revelation. She asked him, he responds to her directly. And this is going to be key later when we see what she does to kind of, oh, get around Isaac. There's no record of Isaac being aware of this specific revelation. We know crystal clear that Rebekah gets it. And here's what it is. Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now this just might be the first instance of ultrasound in human history. It's just a divine one. And here the Lord says, oh, well, no wonder. You got, you're having twins. Congratulations. As uh, one of my wife's best friends in college uh, said when she found out she was having twins, wow, two, two for the price of one. <laughs> two children without, with only one uh, labor and delivery. Thank you. Well, after this divine ultrasound, it's more just that, oh, you understand what's going on and why you're so large? You're great with child. Well, you're extremely great with child. And all this movement in there and what's going on, it's because you're having twins. But more importantly, for the rest of the story, the elder shall serve the younger. Now we see in Luke 2 that when Mary has this experience giving birth to the baby Jesus and the shepherds come, speaking of angels, that she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Well, this is going to be something that Rebecca will keep and ponder for the rest of her life. I'm having two, and I know the younger is supposed to be the one in charge, even though that reverses the norm. Sometimes God's revelations do seem to reverse hmm, common knowledge, or received wisdom, or what we assumed previously. And that's the case for her. But knowing that, She's going to play a part in making sure that that happens. We'll see it later today. So verse 24, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. She knew that. I bet, uh, again, if she didn't say anything to Isaac, then he would have been shocked. Like, whoa, another. She, I don't know if she just played surprised, but she knew it was coming all along. Now, what she didn't know was the specifics, but the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. So that's how we know that it was 20 years of, of waiting. Married at 40, but had a child at 60, threescore years old. Now, strange uh, description of this childbirth. Here comes a baby. Wow, Ooh, that, wow he's red. Ooh, yeah, he's hairy. Okay. And right on his heels, literally. Like, hey, you're not coming out without me. <laughs> if you found the escape route, then I'm, help me. And little baby Jacob grabs onto Esau's heel and is, here comes the two for one, right? 
Now, there's some play on words here and some ancient Hebrew idioms that I think are fascinating. First of all, the word Esau as a name. We've seen so many times that names mean a lot and symbolic of the experience that this child will have later in life or symbolic of, of their coming to earth. There's some connection. Now, Esau, there's a verse later in Genesis where it says that thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Now, Seir means hairy and Edom means red. So those two uh, words hearken back to Esau's birth. He's red and hairy. Oh, he's Edom and he's Seir. So then what does Esau mean? Because some just think, oh yeah, Esau means red or Esau means hairy. Well, by connection. But Esau comes from a Hebrew word, Asa, which means to do or to make. And so most would suggest that Esau simply means this is a doer. This is someone who gets, who gets the job done. Okay? And we'll see that he's one that kind of tries to grab the world by the horns and, and goes out and hunts and finds food and, and, and becomes, makes something of himself. Okay? And, and so his name is very appropriate. Jacob, meanwhile, is a twist on the word for heel. He grabbed Esau's heel and was pulled out by it. Uh, and so let's, let's call him Yaakov after this word for heel. Now there's more because when you get the, the full name Jacob, Yaakov, it means to supplant, which is, which is interesting. Yeah, literally, it means to follow the heel. Uh, which, again, happened literally at birth, but also if there's a Hebrew idiom that, that is this idea of supplanting someone, you're grabbing them by the heel and pulling them down so you can move forward. It's kind of like crabs trying to get out of the, the, the bucket and they're yanking them by the heel. I don't know if crabs have heels, but, but Esau did. And so there's a preview of coming attractions of what will happen with the mess of pottage and the the switching to be able to take the birthright and the blessing. We'll see all of that today. I mean, it's interesting that in English, there's not a direct connection between the Hebrew and the English on this, but in English, we sometimes talk about, are you pulling my leg? Like, are you tricking me? Oh, there's this trickster character again. Are you pulling my leg? Are you trying to deceive me? Now, that's one element of taking the heel. Another one is to follow so closely behind someone. It's like, man, you're on my heels, okay? You're... And that's something true of Jacob in a positive way, that he will so closely try to follow God, that he's the one that God chooses for all of that posterity to follow. This Jacob, who next week we'll meet more directly, oh, there's interesting. We'll see both the good and the bad today. We'll see the ambiguity and, and the positives and potential negatives here that all seem to be symbolized in this moment of birth. Now, they grow up in 27. The boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. He's out, a doer, right? And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, that seems a little confusing. Look up cunning, and it can mean things like skillful or expert. It actually comes from that verb yada that we hopefully are starting to, to know by now as to know, right? To know in, in intimate, powerful, relational ways. Uh, and here's a guy that just, he knows. No wonder he's a doer. He figures things out. He's, he's cunning, skillful, expert in these kinds of things. Meanwhile, Jacob is plain. Uh, that's not much of a compliment. But the Hebrew would suggest it means simple or quiet 
or mild or peaceful or even-tempered. Another translation even says civilized. If Esau is the one out, it's kind of like uh, Ishmael was the wild one and Isaac was the, the homebody there in Sarah's tent. Similarly, Esau is the wild one. He's the cunning one. He's the expert. He's out there doing hunting, whereas plain, simple, even-keeled, civilized Jacob is just there closer to home. The Hebrew also suggests words like complete and perfect and blameless. I mean, if that's plain, then bring on the plainness. Are we, are we <laughs> ornamenting our lives with things that shouldn't be there? Let's stick with plain purity. It's the same word, by the way, that's used to describe Job in the book of Job as perfect and upright, plain. Okay, what you see is what you get. There's even one translation, the contemporary English version, that describes that term as Jacob lived the quiet life of a shepherd, which starts to suggest, is this Jacob's Abel to Esau's Cain? And we'll see later this attempt on, or this desire on Esau's part to take Jacob's life. So some sibling, some sibling rivalry. We've seen it before, and we're going to see it again today. Now, 28, Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, that verse seems odd. Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. I'm sure she loves both of her sons, what mother heart would not. But she realizes, Jacob, I've been told by God, Jacob is the one that's going to be in charge. The elder will serve the younger. And so I need to look out for Jacob, especially since he's, he's, he wants to stay in the tents. He's not out there adventurous. He's kind of a mama's boy in, in, in wonderful ways. And I just, I need to care and nurture and protect him from the dangers of the world or from the dangers of his, of his older brother. Ah, I got to keep an eye out for him. Whereas Isaac, loves Esau. Why? Because he eats his venison? Again, that seems pretty shallow. I'm sure there's other reasons. Maybe it's a matter of he's everything that I wasn't. This, this man's man, this, he reminds me of my dad, you know, that just dad was out there taking on the Mesopotamian kings and I bet Esau could do the same. Oh yeah, if there's somebody that can, that can lead my family forward, if there's someone that can defend the clan, so to speak, oh, there's Esau. And so it's not just about venison. I mean, I like barbecue too, okay? It's more about here's, here's a doer and a, make, a maker, a, a mover and a shaker, and he's going to be able to lead my family and defend them uh, from whatever influences are around him, okay? Uh, I, I think it's more than just plain favorites. God is no respecter of persons, and and parental parents playing favorites is a is not a good idea. Beware of that. Okay, what's one thing I always was amazed about my parents that uh, in this among their six kids, they loved us all, and despite different personalities and different uh, interests and talents, I never felt any more or less loved than any of my siblings. Now, it actually, it, it took my wife to teach me this, by the way. Um, when I was in high school, I learned about two of the degrees of glory. My wife taught me about the third. 
You see, as a, a high school kid surrounded by teenagers and, and collectively we were a little shallower than we needed to be. That's normal. We're growing up, right? But I remember people thinking they were so much better than other people because they, of what they possessed. They drove an, a, a nicer car or they had a car at all. Uh, they came from wealthier families or bigger homes, whatever. And I remember thinking we were just this basic average middle-class family. And I remember at times thinking, what do you think you're better than? Why do you think you're better than me? What, just because your dad makes more money than my dad. That, that has nothing to do with you. And so people that would show off their possessions, I thought that's nothing to be proud of. Now, unfortunately, and this speaks negatively of me, I probably felt pride uh, but it came from, from accomplishment. And I just thought, well, that's something I've done, something I've, I've made of myself. Well, really? Or is that just a gift from God? And he, he helped you accomplish certain things. Um, but it was interesting when I met Emily because I was shocked that she didn't care about any of those things. She didn't care about my resume and didn't care about awards that I had won or things that I had accomplished. It was like... To the point, and, and again, from a shallow perspective, well, everyone else I had met before that cared about it. They thought it was so cool about this, this, and this, whatever. And, and then the, this girl that I finally am interested in isn't interested in any of that? Huh. What, what would impress her since my resume doesn't? And I realized what impressed her were attributes. She... You see, I thought I had moved up because it wasn't about what I had, it's what I did. She had already taken it up another level and realized it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. And that's when it hit me. There really are three degrees of glory. <laughs> what you have is just telestial. What you do is mere terrestrial. Who you are, that's a celestial degree of glory. And I realized my wife wouldn't care about what I'd done until I could convince her about who I was. And I hoped that that would be sufficient. I actually had an experience on, after my mission as my younger brother was beginning his that was so powerful to me and hopefully was to him. I don't know if he watches these videos. <laughs> the, I was teaching at the MTC and he had just got his mission call and was in the MTC to learn Spanish. Now, this brother is amazing, but life came a little harder to him than to some other members of our family. He was just as smart, he had to work, but he had to work harder at it. And sports came easy to me and another brother, and it came much harder to him. Uh, he was so gifted with other things he could do, but it wasn't the kinds of things that primarily teenagers uh, stand in awe of. Well, he came the day before he left the MTC to head out to the mission field. Uh, my night class had just ended and all of my missionaries had left and my brother poked his head in the door and a little bit sheepishly said, Jared, can you give me a blessing before I head out to Mexico tomorrow? And uh, of course, of course, come on in. And I could just sense from him the weight of the world on his shoulders, like I'm scared to death of this, as we all kind of were. But, a spell, but more than just fear, there was a sense of inadequacy I could feel from him, like, will I be as good a missionary as you, since Spanish came easily to you and it's been harder for me? I don't know if I'll, what kind of missionary I'll be, because I can't do the things that you've done. Well, I laid my hands on his head and began to speak, and 
my favorite thing about blessings is not just speaking for God, but feeling for God. And as I came to feel about my little brother the way God feels about him, I was humbled to be related to him. I realized that the elder, in my case me, was inferior to the younger, in this case him, as far as Christ-like attributes were concerned. I remember saying in that blessing that he had no reason to feel less than or inadequate because when it came to the attributes of a missionary, he was starting his mission further ahead than most of the rest of us ended our missions at. It blew me away realizing it took me two years to develop some degree of humility and meekness and reliance on the Lord that my little brother had already surpassed and was beginning his mission with all of those attributes. To me, there is something powerful here about how our divine parent sees each of us, and it's not with preferential treatment. It, it is no respecter of persons. It is equal love for all, and with different blessings to manifest that love. I, I'm amazed at who my brother is. I'm, I'm amazed at all my siblings and my in-laws, and it goes far beyond the telestial or even the terrestrial. They're celestial souls, and God made sure I understood that. Now back to our story. Verse 29 and 30, uh, a story we're well aware of. Jacob sawed pottage. He's making some lentil soup. And Esau came from the field where he typically was, out there doing, making, hunting. And he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. So there's another kind of hint, wink ahead, that uh, this red pottage, well, no wonder they called him Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, not just red and hairy when he was born, but he wanted this red food. Well, 31, Jacob responds, Okay. Sell me this day thy birthright. Now, wow, that seems kind of out of the blue. I don't know if Rebecca has already suggested some things to Jacob about who eventually needs to lead the family. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, either way, Jacob wants the birthright. Verse 32, Esau evidently doesn't because he says, without even having to think about it, Behold, I'm at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? Now, amazing what we just see about Esau there. What profit shall this birthright do? So, do you not realize the value of the covenant? Is this something that you're not recognizing as far as the weight of God's blessings, this eternal weight of glory that we saw in the Doctrine and Covenants? Or what about what he specifically says? It's not just, well, what's this going to do me? Couple it with his first line. I'm about to die. And if I die, what's the point of the covenant? Because it's over then, at least for me. But no, that's not true either. If it's sands of the sea and stars of heaven, then none of that can happen in this life only. I promise, the, the blessings of God don't expire at death. And so... I, I, that, to me, another is one of these problems as far as Esau's perspective is concerned. God's covenant outlasts death. His blessings outlast it, and therefore they definitely outweigh it. 
they outweigh life and death. Because this is a big problem as far as Esau is concerned too. I mean, on the one hand, I don't care how long and hard and hot your day out hunting was. You're not going to die right now. You're, you could survive without this meal. Or you could survive long enough to make yourself your own food. There's something wrong here because Esau is, is putting all his emphasis on the temporal instead of the spiritual. That's going to be a problem if you're trying to make sense of the covenant. Part of this challenge is magnifying physical appetites instead of keeping them in proper perspective. That will be an ongoing problem through a lot of, of oh, family lines that don't end in full covenant keeping. You have to learn to keep physical appetite in proper perspective and make sure that it never is magnified to the point of overshadowing the importance of keeping the covenant. Another possibility here is, think about what the birthright is. We'll see here it's selling the birthright. Later, it's, uh, it's taking the blessing. The birthright and the blessing. Is there, there's some overlap there, but there's also some, some, something to distinguish them. In some ways, the, the, the blessing is more this spiritual manifestation, whereas the birthright, well, to start, is temporal. You get a double portion of your father's goods. Now, that sounds pretty good. Like, if there's only two sons, Jacob and Esau, then what's going to happen when, when Isaac dies? They'll split it in three ways, and Jacob will get one portion, and Esau will get two. That's the benefit of the being the firstborn son. Wait, I'm, I'm twice as good as you, little brother. Well, no, the reason the firstborn son gets the double portion is because he is taking his father's place. And as a result, he's responsible for his mother, if, he, if she's still alive. He's responsible for all of the sisters, if they're still alive and haven't been married yet. He's responsible for the family. He's taking over for his dad. And in some ways, you better hope that the double portion is enough. All the younger siblings can, can take their single portion and go use it singly upon themselves. But not the oldest. And what's happening with Esau here? Wait, you're thinking of yourself and your physical needs. You're hungry and you'll do anything to meet that physical hunger right now, including not to place proper importance upon the covenant. Hmm, that's a problem. Because later in life, when dad does die and you receive that double portion, will you be feeding others with it? Or will you be feeding yourself? Remember what kept Joseph Smith from obtaining the gold plates that first time he saw them. He started thinking about what this would mean temporally, financially. No, that's not what this is for. And the moment you start thinking about the double portion as your chance to get ahead, no, it's your chance to make sure everyone else can move forward. So we're start, like I said, we're starting to see Esau's disqualifications, okay? Now verse 33, Jacob says, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. We, we speak of that, it's become a famous phrase, to sell your birthright for a mess of pottage. A mess? We don't usually, well, we call it the mess hall or the mess kit. Mess is just, here's the food, here's the meal. But... It, that does make a mess of things. So maybe in English it's a more appropriate term than we realize. He, he sells it. And in 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. 
And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way, like without even thinking twice about it. It seems like a pretty nonchalant moment. And thus Esau despised his birthright. That's how the verse ends. Now look up the word despised, and it means things like scorn or slight or belittle, to show contempt for or to make little account of. In Spanish, there's a great word. Uh, it's menospreciar, to preciar, to prize or to price, to value, menos, less. So to menospreciar is to value less, to undervalue something. It's like, ah, it doesn't mean anything. What, what's, this, what's this birthright anyway? So it's interesting. In some ways, there's the potential danger in the future of thinking too much of it, but using it all on himself. But in the meantime, I mean, dad's still alive and, and there's plenty for all of us. So I don't even care who's in charge and who isn't. I mean, if, and I don't want to take the responsibility for mom or anybody else. So it, I'm a mover and a shaker. I'm a doer, a maker. I'm a hunter. I can provide for myself. It's fine. No big deal. Uh, every man for himself, and I'm going to worry about myself. And right now it's about food, so feed me. Covenant, take it or leave it. And I'm leaving it. He undervalues it. He belittles it. He despises it, is the term used here. It's interesting because the same word is used in, at least in the English translation, in Romans chapter 2. When Paul warns the people there about taking for granted the atonement of Jesus Christ, He's teaching them grace, but he's worried that if you take grace to the extreme at the, at the expense of repentance and righteousness, then it's just, ah, put it on Jesus' tab. He's got it covered. Careful. And what, the way Paul says it is, despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? His goodness is, trying, is supposed to make you Change and repent, not make you put it on his tab and just take his grace for granted. Some translations put that as to presume upon his grace. He's going to cover it. He always does. Or in this case, to despise the riches of his goodness. Well, Esau was despising the riches of God's goodness. And so no wonder he sold them. Take it or leave it, and I'm leaving it. Now, the chapter ends there, only to turn the page to chapter 26, and what do we see? First sentence, a famine. Hmm. Let's take Esau's hunger and then enlarge it to encompass everyone. What are you going to do when you're hungry? Do you forget the covenant like Esau just did? Are you trusting in the arm of flesh and whatever I can find to meet my own needs? Who cares about the way that I go about obtaining it? Chapter 26, verse 1, there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. Now, like I said, Isaac is becoming Abraham 2.0, and we're starting to see some of these parallels. We saw that he marries a woman who is barren, despite being part of a covenant that's defined by posterity. We see a famine taking place in the... Well, we see two sons that are at odds with one another. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael in Abraham's case, Jacob and Esau in Isaac's case. We see a famine in the land that kept happening to Father Abraham as well. And in fact, he meets the same character, Abimelech. Good thing, by the way, that, that Abraham had treated Abimelech so well 
that they had made a covenant with each other that would that would outlive them to be able to help their children and their children's children remain at peace. Well, Isaac, Abraham 2.0, is now step grown up, taking his father's place, stepping into that. And instead of going to Egypt, like Abraham did the first time, he's going to stay right here. He's going to stay within the confines of covenant, despite his physical hunger. Hmm. Esau, learn from this. And so he goes to Abimelech. In fact, verse 2, the Lord appears unto him, Isaac, and said, go not down into Egypt. Okay? Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries. Remember, here's the covenant. I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. Don't let a famine dissuade you from this. Don't let it trick you into leaving behind your birthright. I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto thy seed all these countries and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So you see this renewal of the covenant? Same kind of language. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your posterity and through them I'll bless the whole world. Oh, speaking of posterity, next generation. Isaac, great to meet you. I was a good friend with your father. okay, And now I want to be a good friend of yours. Uh, so... Through you, I will continue to bless the entire world. Trust me on that. And hold on to the land. Hold on to the covenant. And posterity and priesthood and promised land will still be yours. And through you will be, will be all. Don't go to... E you see, Egypt was always the, the convenient runaway spot. Okay? Uh, we'll see, we saw it in Abraham. We, evidently, Isaac was tempted to do the same. We'll see it in Jacob and Joseph, the huge famine. They all have to go there. There's no other option. Uh, we see Jesus go to Egypt. I mean, Egypt is the best place to go because it's less dependent on immediate rainfall. Since the Nile is so long, as long as it rains somewhere upstream, eventually it will find its way down to Egypt where the Nile will flood and bring fruitfulness back to the earth. So... It's an, I'll put it this way, Egypt is an easier place to trust in the arm of flesh. Because there always seems to be sufficient flesh on that arm. Whereas in Israel, oh yikes. If you're a river culture, you can tend to trust in the river because the water just keeps coming. If you're in a rain culture, better pray hard <laughs> that the rain comes. Okay? And with famines in the land in Israel, yes, there's a Jordan River, but that's way down in the valley. No wonder Sodom and Gomorrah went there. No wonder Lot dwelt there. If you're up in the plains or up in the mountains of Judea, you better be praying for rain. There, we'll see more of that since Babylon is by the rivers of Babylon and Egypt is along the Nile and Sodom was along the Jordan which became Dead Sea to them. I even think of, of Nauvoo on the Mississippi and going, well, this will be an okay spot to, to stay a while, but no. You can trust in the Mississippi because it'll always keep flowing. Let's head out to the western desert, shall we? And yeah, I guess there's like City Creek and a little token Jordan River, but good luck with that. You better pray for rain. You better trust in the arm of God instead of trusting in the arm of flesh. So Isaac, don't go to Egypt with its Nile. Stay here and pray for rain. In fact, better said, stay here and stay within the covenant. It's not about what you will eat. It's about who you will feed. That has to be the focus. 
exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity, like we keep saying. Now, verse 5. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Can I come up with any other synonyms here? Abraham was obedient. He did anything and everything I asked, down to the point of being willing to sacrifice you, an experience I know you remember well. Will you do likewise? Will you stay within the confines of covenant? Here's your first test. Well, he's had tests before, believe me. But here's another one. Then six through nine, Isaac and Rebekah choose to stay in Abimelech's land. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because Isaac tells all the people, oh, th this is my sister. Where did he learn that? Again, I told you it was 2.0, right? And so just as Abraham had said, Sarah is my sister, not my wife, so you don't have to kill me. Now, next generation, it's happening. Deja vu all over again, right? It's, it's happening. And now Isaac is saying to people that Rebekah is my sister. Well, Abimelech... Uh, notices at one point that there's no way they're brother and sister. This is husband and wife. This family, what's it? They did it again, <laughs> right? So he confronts Isaac about it and says, come here, what are you doing? Your dad did the exact same thing to me. And Isaac could probably say, well, yeah, because he was in the exact same danger. I was worried about this. And like we talked last week, Abimelech is such a wonderful person. Philistine uh, king notwithstanding. Amazing person with innocency and integrity as defining features. Well, he hasn't changed as time has gone on. And so when he confronts uh, Isaac about this, he says in verse 10, What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lain with thy wife, and thou shouldst have brought guiltiness upon us. I love that. Last time it was innocency of my, of my hands and integrity of my heart. Here again, yeah. We're innocent. You could have brought guilt. And people would have lightly committed a sin that is heavy upon us. There's nothing light about adultery, about immorality. We learned that in Sodom and Gomorrah. We learned it in, in Abimelech's concern over what was taking place with Abraham. We can't let it happen here. To me, it's interesting the way he puts it. And to me, it speaks of our needing to be extremely careful about the way we bend rules because it might lead other people to completely break them. Again, like with Abraham, well, first time we saw it, it came from as, as a command from God. Here, I don't know if that's still the case. If, if Isaac just grew up on fun stories about mom and dad and how they tricked, you know, trickster, right? Uh, how they tricked the Egyptians and the Philistines, I don't know. And so, it had, well, this is family tradition. This is how it works. We're going to do the same. I don't know. Uh, or if it's a matter of, well, it wasn't completely dishonest on mom and dad's part because they were related and sister is an encompassing term. And since my dad and my wife's grandpa were brothers, then we're, I don't know how the cousins and how many removed is that that is, but we're brother and sister too in the, in the general term. So we're not lying. We're bending the truth to preserve ourselves. But again, from Abimelech's perspective, you bending would have led to our people breaking. And such things ought not to be. There might be times where you are doing something iffy and you know you're justified. Uh, the ox is in the mire, for example. But I do worry sometimes about people that are watching 
and seen you bend a rule, and in their mind, it's no different than them breaking it. I was going to go to a party on when I was in high school, senior year, and I didn't go to many parties because this was L.A., and I mostly non-member friends, and I knew what kinds of things were happening at the parties. In fact, sometimes my non-member friends would tell me, Halverson, awesome party this weekend that you're not going to want to come to, just FYI. And I'd always laugh and thank you for looking out for me. If I'm not supposed to be there, you probably shouldn't go either, but to each his own. Now, in this case, this party I wanted to go was senior year, and kind of last time I'll get to see these friends. And I remember my dad just expressing his concern about me going to this party. And I remember defending myself and my honor and saying, Dad, I, I don't, anything in the word of wisdom smells bad to me. So it's not even a temptation, okay? Um, I, I'm not going to do anything bad at this party. And my dad's response, I'll never forget. He said, it's not you I'm, I'm worried about. I was like, huh? See, at the time, my dad was in the stake presidency, and he said, people know you in the stake, the youth do, and I just worry that some might go to the party since you're going. I can picture them saying to their parents, come on, mom and dad, Jared's going. Why can't I go? Oh, okay, well, President Halverson's son's going to be there. That must be okay. And the concern was, what if the word of wisdom is a temptation to them? What if immorality is something they need to be on the, on the watch out for. I just, I know you're not going to break the rules, son. I just don't want other people to be led down a path. Un, they might have taken it lightly. They, would, they might take the dangers lightly. And, and you might bring guiltiness upon them, even as you remain guiltless yourself. It's something to, to ponder. At least it had me pondering as a, as a high school senior, and no, I didn't go to the party. and didn't miss anything. Now, verse 11, Abimelech, now fully in the know, charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. That's how serious this is. Don't take it lightly. I'm taking it heavily, okay? And you should too. Morality is, is a life and, and death kind of thing. Then, verse 12 and 13, Isaac sowed in the land and received in the same year an hundredfold and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. Oh, you didn't have to go to Egypt, see? Yes, in Egypt you would have survived. You could have used whatever money you had to purchase grain from the Egyptians. But here, in spite of famine, trusting that God would allow the rain to fall, it's your own property. It's your own crops. And instead of just purchasing food from others, you are now producing a hundredfold, which is more than you could eat. You see, covenant, you're in a place where you can now feed other people. That's what it's all for. Now, 14, he had possession of flocks and possession of herds, great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. Hmm. And how did they work out that covetousness? For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. Talk about grabbing the heel and pulling somebody back, right? Talk about trying to tear others down. But that doesn't lift you up. God will still provide. So fill somebody else's wells with earth. Stop them up. Stop the channel. God can't bless you now. Oh, you want to bet? And God continues to pour down blessings that he would have been willing to share with you too if you hadn't been so covetousness of what you didn't have. Now, verse 16, Abimelech says to Isaac, 
go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. And Isaac departs. Now, this is interesting because, wait, I thought we had a covenant. Well, yeah, but, well, speaking of Abraham 2.0, this sounds like Abraham and Lot, and we need to divide since there's not room enough for both of us to prosper. And the Philistines are now worried. They're envious of Isaac as they were envious of Abraham. And now it's, we try to get in the way of Abraham. We can't get in the way of Isaac. Well, we'll try. Separate. Okay? And so he does. I'd rather be, I'm big enough to be small. I would rather just st- lose something physical rather than lose some kind of relationship that is worth holding on to. So then in 18, Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abraham, his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. So repeat there. He called their names after the names by which his father had called them. So again, I'm going to be like my father. Let me, oh, I like this. Let me open, reopen the channels through which God can bless us. Let me reopen the covenant channel, the Let me keep pursuing the covenant path. Remember he said earlier, I'm not going to, he said he went forward. I love that. He didn't go backwards. Forget Lot's wife, or remember her, that is. I moved forward. And I'm going to move forward along the covenant. I'm going to renew the source by which God's blessings can flow. We can't allow the blessings God gave to our fathers to be damned. Okay, we're not going to plug the hole. We're not going to fill the well with earth. Are we making sense of these symbols? We want to make sure the blessings continue to flow forward. I'm going to unkink the hose, redig the well. I'll put the same names on them that my father did. I want the Abrahamic covenant to continue to bless the whole world as it was intended to. And that's the only reason God is choosing me to choose everyone else. So, 19 to 22, Isaac's servants keep digging new wells. And then Abimelech's servants keep coming back to, like, take them over. Remember, we saw the same thing back in Abraham's day also, that Abimelech's servants and his servants were fighting over wells. And Abraham would just say, look, can we get on the same page here? Here's the seven ewe lambs, Beersheba, right? Uh, we, all, we studied all that last week. Well, it's happening all over again. And like father, like son, Isaac is turning the cheek. You, oh, you wanted that well that we just dug. Fine, fine, we'll go elsewhere. And they dig a new well. And the Abimelech people come and they take over that well too. Oh, sorry. sorry. Um, let's try a third time. And finally, the third time, they're left alone with the well that they are digging. In 22, Isaac says, For now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Great statement. Not room enough for all of us? Well, then God will make room for us. He will carve out space where he can bless us so that we can continue to bless the whole world, including those that that didn't think there was room enough for both of us. Then 23 and 24. Isaac went up from thence to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. At what point does the God of our fathers become our God? At what point does our parents' testimony become our own personal testimony? And like we talked two weeks ago, at what point is the Abrahamic covenant become a covenant with Isaac far more directly 
When does it become a direct renewal upon us? Right? When we're sealed and find our covenant companion? Well, in verse 25 then, he builded an altar there. Just like dad would have, right? Wherever he went. And Isaac called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. Just like dad was always in the business of building altars, Isaac always seems to be in the business of digging wells. And yes, they're both doing both. Okay? And to me, again, there's some beautiful symbolism there that if an altar is a mini mountain of the Lord, this outcropping of stones that you've set up, and a well then is heading in the opposite direction. Climb high or dig deep, but either way, find access to the blessings of God. Climb your way to heaven and offer him things. Or dig your way into the earth itself and find the source of living water that's always been down beneath you, ready to bubble up and give you life. I, I love these altars and wells that characterize the life of Abraham and Isaac. We'll see more of it in Jacob with Jacob's well that even Jesus drank from. Then 26 and 27, Abimelech comes down to him, seeks him out after he just kicked him out of the territory. And, and Isaac asks him, wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me and have sent me away from you? It's like, whoa, whoa, hate, that's a strong word. Well, there just wasn't big enough for everyone. My people were envying yours. And oh, maybe, maybe it was even out of respect. If you get far enough, maybe my people will leave you alone as they seem to be beginning to. I'm sorry about this. I know we've made a covenant and my people haven't been keeping it. Thank you for keeping it on your side. Thank you for keeping the peace, even though it, it hasn't always been easy. It takes two to tango. Thanks for being the one that refused to, to, to be two. Okay. So verse 20, 28, Abimelech says, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. And we said, Let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee. Let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee. And as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace, thou art now the blessed of the Lord. Now again, there's a little irony there. We've done nothing but good to thee? I picture Isaac like, well, nah, that's debatable. But I'll take it. If this is, even without an apology, I'll forgive you. Uh, if this is your attempt to make an oath, and at least to move forward, then I'll let bygones be bygones. And I'll make that oath with you, which he does. In fact, he, more than an oath, he makes a feast. Verse 30, he made them a feast and they did eat and drink. In fact, with that, they end up, Abimelech and his people end up leaving after having made the oath. And that's the day that they strike water in that, del, in that well that they're digging. Which to me again says something. If you will, if you'll just let, let it go. Yeah, we've already lost two wells. But better to lose a well than a friendship. And it's a preserve the relationship. Turn the other cheek. Make a promise even though they haven't always kept theirs in the past. Give them a chance. And, and give to people that just seem to keep on taking. Now, I know there needs to be a limit to this, right? Uh, and not to be you know, codependent or enablers. There's a... a the Lord's law of war that we studied last year in the Doctrine and Covenants is, is clear on this. But whenever possible, be big enough to be small. 
and turn that cheek and preserve the relationship. And again, what, what I love about this one is they keep taking our wells. Well, let them have it. God will provide. And sure enough, the day that they establish this covenant of peace, they strike water. God always comes through. Then finally, verse 34 and 35, this chapter ends with some bad news. And it's back to Esau. We kind of lost sight of him in this chapter. The previous one ended with him selling his birthright, showing that he despised it. He didn't care. He menospreciard it. Okay, And here we see it again. 34 and 35, Esau was 40 years old. Good time to get married if you ask his dad. Well, 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Beshemoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Well, wouldn't this be cause for rejoicing? No. Notice they were both daughters of Hittites, which means they're not in Abraham's extended family line. These are children of the Canaanites. These are, this is marriage outside the covenant. No wonder the chapter ends, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. How, how could he keep the covenant when he's marrying outside of it? How can he pass the covenant down to posterity when his posterity cannot be born within the covenant? Did Esau not understand all the work that his grandfather went through to send his servant all the way back to his mother's family in Haran? Don't send Isaac there. Bring someone back. Don't descend to their level. Find someone that has ascended to God's level and bring them out of that place. And even here in the promised land, Esau is marrying outside of God's promises. Yeah, grief of mind, you better believe it. In fact, we'll see later just how much grief that brings to Rebecca, especially. We'll see that here in chapter 27. So turn the page and here we get another story and this that we know, a famous one, and it's a tricky one. Honestly, I've been wrestling with this one like, man, why does this have to be so confusing and so ambiguous? I wish we could simplify it. I think sometimes we're tempted to. Uh, we'll talk more about this. I want us to leave some space open for the difficulty here, though. Both the pros and the cons, the strengths and the weaknesses, since I know I have both. So we can safely assume that Isaac has both, and Rebecca has both, and Jacob has both. And we'll see next week, Esau definitely has both. We've been focusing on his negatives. Next week, we'll see his beautiful positives. Hold on for that one. It is a redemptive story as far as Esau is concerned. Awesome. Okay? Don't miss next week. But in this one, when we see Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob as the unmitigated good guys, well, we all have character flaws and things that we need to be working on. And we'll see both good and bad in all of them today in chapter 27. Now, verse 1, It came to pass that when Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim, so that he could not see. Now, you have to ask yourself, is he losing physical sight alone? Or is he starting to lose, to get a little cloudy in his spiritual vision? It's hard to tell. Again, earlier, if it was, I, I, I love Esau because of his venison, is this just, I'm a barbecue fan, or I need a son who can defend my people? Hard to tell. But with some kind of eyesight issue, he tells Esau, I'm getting old. I don't know how much longer I have, and I want to pass down my blessing upon you. 
I said earlier, what's the difference between the birthright and the blessing? Does, does Isaac know about the transaction that took place over the mess of pottage? I don't know. Um, Jacob already has purchased the birthright. Esau easily sold it to him for pennies on the dollar. How does that relate to this blessing? Now, birthright is going to be leading the family and receiving the double portion. Blessing also seems to include some kind of spiritual strength. This is more of the covenant side of things, perhaps. But to whatever degree they, they overlap or are distinguished, there's probably a Venn diagram somewhere in here. Whatever it is, Esau sends, excuse me, Isaac sends Esau out to go hunt, to bring back some venison and make it just like, you know, I like it so I can bless you before I die. Well, verse 5, Rebekah heard when Isaac spake to Esau his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt for venison and to bring it. And now that he's off camera, Rebekah can rush back to Jacob and say, Jacob, time is of the essence. We only have, how, how long does it take your brother usually to find, find some meat to bring back? How long does the hunt usually last? But whatever it is, we have to move. I need you to go find, get some goats out of the flock, bring them in, and I'm going to cook your dad the ultimate dinner, just like he likes it. Believe me, I know the recipe. And with meal in hand, I want you to go to your father to receive that father's blessing. It's, it needs to be yours, not Esau's. Now, this is where it gets tricky for Jacob. And it makes me wonder if, if Rebecca has said anything about this before or not. Again, we get a clue from the, the mess of pottage that maybe Jacob knows he's supposed to be in charge, but this one is like, I don't know, mom. Or maybe it's like birthright's enough for me and I'll still lead out, but blessing? Yeah, let, let Esau have it. It's his. Either way, Jacob says to his mom in verse 11, behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. I mean, you practically named him after that. I am a smooth man. My father peradventure will feel me and I shall seem to him as a deceiver. And I shall bring a curse upon me and not a blessing. In other words, mom, I don't want to live up to my name in that way. I can't, I can't drag Esau down like that. I can't deceive my father. I can't pull his leg. Because if I do and he finds out, then there's a curse on its way instead of a blessing. In some ways, this reminds me of the Ham and Canaan story we studied with Noah. There's right ways and wrong ways to get blessings. And I can't go about it in the wrong way. Now, this is where it gets interesting for Rebecca. Verse 13, right on the heels, no pun intended, of Jacob saying, I'm going to get cursed for this, mom. Then unapologetically and unafraid, mother says to son, upon me be thy curse, my son. Only obey my voice and go fetch me them. Now, that's gutsy on the part of Rebecca. If there's a curse involved, then I'll take it. Now, huge risk, which, and, and totally fearless in the face of risk, which suggests that Rebecca believes there will be no curse. Now, what would give her that kind of confidence? Oh, yeah, I received a revelation when you were, even before you were born. My knowledge of you precedes my even coming to see you. I, know, I knew who God was sending I had my, my divine ultrasound, and I knew not only that you and your brother would be forthcoming, but that you, little brother, would be in charge of your older one. That is God's will, and I'm going to make sure that it happens. 
I know this is what I'm supposed to do. Well, I know that this is what Isaac's supposed to do. I know he is supposed to give you the birthright and the blessing that you're supposed to be in charge. But his eyes are dim. I worry about his spiritual sight. I worry if it's been clouded by preference instead of principle. And if he just wants to do it his way, I'm going to make sure that he does it God's way. Now, that might be the most amazing thing or the worst thing. And it's really hard to tell. In some ways, it reminds me of Eve and the choice made in Eden. I'm going to make sure we do the right thing. And the right thing is partaking of this fruit and doing something that looks wrong in order to bring ultimate rightness out of it. And so I partook. And then I invited Adam to partake and he partook of it too. Good will come of this. No curse. I'm so confident in that I will take your place in the cursing if there ever is one. Now, as we suggested back then with, with Eve and Adam, if there, to whatever degree it was beguiling and to whatever degree there was transgression or, or mistake there, I would say, as I did then, that it was making a unilateral decision with bilateral consequences. It was choosing on her own when her decision affected Adam as much as it affected her. I wonder if there's a similar lesson here where Rebecca, trust your husband. Yeah, he might really like barbecue. <laughs> but he's an honorable man that, that prioritizes the promises of God. Don't you see what... I'm sure he wanted to keep all those wells with Abimelech too, but he gave up on his personal preference in order to keep the covenants of God. He'll do the same thing here. Talk to him. Did you ever tell him about your spiritual impression? I vouchsafed that revelation to you. Now of all times, you need to share it. Trust that he who entreated God for you will also trust in what God gave directly to you. Talk to him. We have no evidence that she did. Well, in this case, she proceeds with her plan. 14 through 17, she makes the food, puts Esau's clothing upon Jacob, even gets some goat skin to put on Jacob's hands and neck so that just in case dad feels you, you'll be as hairy as your big brother. Now, there's different varieties of goat, and so don't think <laughs> too much of a hairy beast here, but rather, okay, more than just the smooth Jacob, all right? Well, verse 18, Jacob came unto his father and says to him, My father, Isaac responds, here am I. Who art thou, my son? Now, he was just, you, somebody, I, I can't see, but somebody just referred to me as father, so it must be one of my sons, but wh which one is it? It's, it's hard to tell, okay? I can't see. Are my ears playing tricks on me? Verse 19, Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. Now, this sure seems like a bold-faced lie. Is this Jacob just being the trickster? Is this Jacob just honoring mother's wishes and going against what he would have preferred? Again, this is, we see humanity here, okay? Uh, justifiable if we're thinking of Rebecca making sure God's will is done. But again, is it a matter of 
I, I don't know. I'm wrestling with this. I'm still wrestling with this. Okay? Because, yes, I know. She knows. She's had her revelation. The younger will be in charge of the older. And I'm going to make sure it happens. But remember when, I, when Abraham was like, God, I know you're going to give me posterity. And since I can't give it to you, then take my servant. And God's like, thanks for the suggestion. Don't need your help. Next chapter. Uh, Sarah, I'm the weak link in the chain then. Since I can't give Abraham seed, then take uh, Hagar and then raise up seed. And God's like, thanks for the help. Don't need it. Uh, here, again, is it a matter of, Rebecca, I don't, you don't have to take matter into your, matters into your own hands. This is a fine line. This is a proving of contraries. And I'm just trying to find the Goldilocks zone here. What, to what degree do we exercise our agency to make sure that God's will is done? And on the other hand, to what degree do we honor God's wishes and know that he is able to perform it? Okay? That what he has promised, he is able to perform. A great phrase we saw last week. Oh, Rebecca is trying to navigate this narrow way. Jacob is trying to, uh, is he crossing his fingers behind his back? I, I don't know. This one's tricky. But he does tell dad, I'm Esau. Then 20, Isaac said unto his son, well, how is it thou hast found it so quickly, my son? Wow, you're a better hunter than I thought. And he, his son responds, because the Lord thy God brought it to me. Now, there's some bending of the truth too, but is he seeing the Lord behind his mother's actions? Technically, this food came from my mom, but mom received her marching orders from God. Ah, maybe not these specific ones, but when I was in embryo, ah, mom knew. And so God is behind this somewhere. In verse 21, Isaac says to Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. So even dad is a little skeptical here, a little confused, like, well, I don't know. Okay, you said you're Esau. It doesn't sound much like Esau. I, I can't see. My eyes are not of no help to me. My ears are sounding, are saying one thing. Well, let me try a different sense. Let's go with touch. Come here and feel. And you can picture Jacob going, oh, thank heaven for goat skin. Mom, you're a genius. He comes forward, and in 22, Isaac felt him and said, well, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. 23, and he discerned him not, because his hands were hairy, as his brother Esau's hands. So, he blessed him. And before he does, he asks again, Art thou my very son Esau? And Jacob says, I am. So dad says, Bring it near me, speaking of the food. I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Makes you wonder, is he trying to buy some time? Let me finish this meal first, and then I'll bless you. Because I'm really, I'm really trying to figure this thing out. Earlier when it says he discerned him not, and when your eyes aren't, can't be trusted, or when your, your ears are you're not sure about, when what you're feeling, touching, I'm going through all the senses I can think of. And I, I don't know, maybe even now I'm going on taste. Like, hmm, it even tastes like what, what Esau made. Yeah, and mom knows the recipe. But am I trying the best, the ultimate way to tell is going to be the gift of discernment. And he's, he's undiscerning here. Is this again evidence of some kind of loss of spiritual sight? Clouded by preference. I don't know. 
Then, verse 26, his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. But even that's another test, because now it's going to be the smell test. Yeah, going through every one of my five senses. He came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment, and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Okay. Eyes, no help. Ears, sure sounds like Jacob, but touch, feels like Esau. Taste, tastes like Esau's food. Smell, smells like Esau's clothing. Okay, must be Esau. 28 and 29 then, here comes the blessing. Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven, and the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren. Now that's where Rebecca would have said, ah, okay, there's the blessing. And let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be every one that curseth thee. Blessed be he that blesseth thee. It's similar to the language that God gave in the blessing to Abraham. Now from Isaac on to Jacob, it's being passed down. So much of this is temporal, dews of heaven, fatness of the earth. Some of it is leadership. Your siblings and people will bow down to you. Now, as soon as that, and that's all part of the covenant, right? Posterity, promised land, priesthood, leadership, uh, exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity, because I know you will be inclusive. Well, 30 and 31 then came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob. And Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father. Doesn't make it for a great movie, right? <laughs> the plot thickens. That Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And he also had made savory meat and brought it unto his father and said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison that thy soul may bless me. Oh, he comes in so unaware. So excited. I'm ready for that blessing, father. Uh, last time I was so hungry, I gave up the birthright. But this time, I know you're the one that's hungry. And I'm here to feed you and receive my promised blessing. Verse 32, Isaac, his father, said unto him, Who, who art thou? And Esau said, I, I'm thy, thy son, thy firstborn Esau. That there's confusion meeting equal confusion here. In fact, 33, Isaac trembles very exceedingly and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. Now it's dawning. Isaac's eyes are opening now. He's realizing he's been had. Somebody yanked his, pulled his leg, yanked his heel. And it wasn't just Jacob. It was Rebecca too. What have, what have I done? Now, all this trembling. By the way, uh, one commentator pointed out, it's really interesting, that we see very little of the emotion in Abraham and Isaac during the time of the sacrifice of Isaac. Remember last week when we studied it, we see a very slow and painstaking description to let us, to give us kind of time to try to, to plumb the depths of their emotion. But the text itself doesn't describe their emotion at all. Here, you see a lot more descriptive language as far as how uh, Isaac and Esau are feeling about this lost blessing. Isaac is trembling exceedingly. We'll see all kind of weeping on the part of Esau in just a moment. 
But notice the last phrase that Isaac used. I blessed him. I didn't just eat his food. I blessed him. And then that last line. Yea, and he shall be blessed. He will be. I know, I know that blessing came from God. Not me. I may not have seen clearly, but I know God sees clearly. And that blessing will come through. Because it was given to its, its rightful recipient. Now is he, start, is he starting to feel maybe what Rebecca had felt decades before? Is there this sense of, that was right. I'll put it this way. Uh, the first year I ever taught this in seminary, we, did, we had a whole court case. And I wrote out a script and I gave it to the students and, okay, I need you to play the judge and you're some jury. I need you to, you're, you're Esau and you're Jacob and you're Rebecca and you're Isaac. And we actually brought all kinds of people to the witness stand as we were trying to make sense of, well, what's our verdict going to be? Uh, did the ends justify the means? Was this the right thing to do but, or the wrong way to do it? And how are we going to, it made for an interesting class discussion. But we brought people to the stand beyond the, the key characters. We brought, for example, Esau's two wives, the Hittite women. And we made them swear uh, and testify of their lineage and what that meant as Hittites and outside the covenant. Hmm. We brought a very cold bowl of pottage, some old oatmeal, uh, <laughs> just crusty and hard, as Exhibit A of just how much value Esau had placed on the birthright and its associated blessing. We brought, ooh, this was an interesting one. We even brought Peter from pre-mortality to the witness stand. And the students were like, what? How does Peter factor into this? And well, we, we, the lawyer asked him to describe what Jesus had said to him when he gave him the sealing power, the keys of the kingdom. And we pointed out that whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, which is what Esau just admitted. I bound it on earth. It's going to be bound in heaven. But then we had Peter continue his testimony as he said, and whatsoever, and Jesus also said, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Ah, so Peter and your honor and ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you mean to suggest that blessings you pronounce can be unpronounced? Can, blessings you do can be undone? Is it true that you can loose what you bind? And God will loose as, as well. And Peter said, yes, that's exactly what Jesus said to me. Hmm. So Isaac, could you have reversed this? Did you bind on earth unknowingly, but then once your eyes were fully open, realized that yes, this, this is bound in heaven as it should be. And I'm not going to take it back, son. I'm not going to undo what I did. I did something right without even knowing it. Okay. Well, the court case proceeds, or at least the drama does uh, here that we're describing. Verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. Like I said, this is more emotion than we ever saw in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And a father who now is trembling exceedingly, a son who is crying with an exceeding bitter cry, Father, Father, bless me, me too. Is there nothing left for me 
Maybe here he's finally realizing, I gave up the birthright for nothing, and now not even any blessing is left for me. Is this where his eyes are fully opened? To the worth of something that he had undervalued. The blessings he had taken for granted. Verse 35, dad responds, Thy brother came with subtlety and have taken away thy blessing. I thought you were the cunning one, son. Well, there was some cunning in Jacob too. 36, Esau responds, Is not he rightly named Jacob? Oh, you named him for the right reason. He hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. Now, full disclosure, Esau, you sold it to him for nothing. Esau continues, And behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? There is such, oh, pathos, such feeling in this. He's finally come to his senses. He finally realizes what he's lost, not once, but twice. Is that all there is? Do you not have a blessing for me? And what amazes me about God is that in his generosity, there's always a blessing. It's like the telestial kingdom far surpassing our understanding. Infinitely greater than what we have. There's a gift. It's just infinitely less than what God had intended to give us. Even in our worst moments, when we are crying with exceeding bitterness, begging for God to bless us with something, He always does. He always does. There is yet a blessing reserved for you. And so Isaac gives it to him. 37, Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord. All his brethren have I given to him for servants. With corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I now do unto thee, my son? What can I give you? Well, there is something. 38, Esau says to his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. So much feeling here. And father does have a blessing to give him. 39 and 40 bears so much similarity to 28 and 29. I'll put them up on the screen side by side so you can see just how similar they are. Yes, there's a blessing for you. In the first instance to Jacob, therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. And in 39, to Esau, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven. I want to give you all that I can. There will still be a portion for you, son. And as far as temporal blessings are concerned, I will bless you as abundantly as I have blessed Jacob. The difference comes down to leadership. And that I can't or won't change. In the first instance, let people serve thee. And for Esau, thou shalt serve thy brother. In fact, there's more language along those lines. It's interesting to Esau. He says, by thy sword shalt thou live and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. Now, that's an interesting one. At some point later in the future, will there be a separation between his seed 
just like there was between Isaac and Ishmael? And the answer is yes. There would be a separation between Jacob and Esau. Or I should say between the Israelites and the Edomites. That's another way of saying between the Jacobites and the Esauites. Okay? And that will come later. There will be a removal of the yoke. And so this, which began in conflict or competition, sadly will end in competition and conflict as well. But in the meantime, what are you two brothers going to make of this? And like I said, between what we see now and what we'll see next week, there's some, some redemption going on, some, some solving of problems. But I do see a hint of God's generosity and kindness in what Isaac just did. Yes, your brother has the birthright. He will lead. And as Rebecca knew, that was God's will from the very beginning. But I will bless you. God always has a blessing for his children. And will give them as much as justice will allow. And as much as mercy will provide. Well, how does Esau respond to this? I doubt he recognized... He wasn't there for Jacob's blessing. So I doubt he recognized the similarities. He never got to see the chart. Uh, I, I wonder if he even registered that your dad just blessed you with some amazing things. Dews of heaven, the, the fatness of the earth, you're going to be okay. I think the only thing that he really heard was, my brother is going to be in charge of me. I'm going to serve him. And dad said something about a sword and breaking off a yoke. Well, bring it on little brother. Because in verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. This was one of his last acts, it seems. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. Like I said, he's so caught up in his own anger, he can't recognize the blessings that he's just been given. He seems to have completely forgotten his own Oh, culpability, that in some ways you're, an, if this is a crime that your brother has committed against you, then sadly you are an accessory to the crime, which always seems to be the case. We tend to victimize ourselves through our sins. We are, we are perpetrators in, in victimizing ourselves. But he's forgotten that too. I'm so mad at my brother for what he's taken from me that I'm going to take it all from him. Forget my single portion and my brother's double portion. I don't even want a double portion anymore. I want the entire portion and I will kill my brother over this. Sword, yoke, right now. Now 42, the words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, Behold thy brother Esau, as touching thee, doth comfort himself, purposing to kill thee. Now, that's an interesting way to put it. Esau wants to kill you. Why? In order to comfort himself. That's an equation that just won't add up. And yet so often we think that it does. And if I can pull someone else down, then that allows me to rise above. I'll find comfort by sharing in my, by bringing others to share in my in my misery. That isn't that isn't how it works. Satan seeks that all men may be miserable like unto himself. Well, in this moment, Esau, in, all, in his hatred, in his rage, 
I'm going to take it out on someone and that will get it out of my system. That will comfort me. It never does. You probably remember Brigham Young's uh, just homely advice that if you ever get bit by a rattlesnake, you only got two options. One, chase it down to take out your frustration. Kill it because it tried to kill you. But what you do in the process? All that exercise, that venom is now coursing through your entire body. And you're the one that did it. Whereas if you just stop right in the moment and let the snake do whatever the snake's going to do, let it slither away and localize the venom, stop it from spreading, do whatever you can to get it out of you, then even if the snake lives to tell the tale, you'll live to tell it too. And that's what matters most here. Forgive. Turn the other cheek. As Isaac had with Abimelech, as Abraham had done with Lot. If, you are the cov- if you're the source of the covenant and the standard that you are trying to bring people into, there will always be haters. There will be, always be those that attack you. And if you haven't learned to turn the other cheek, then rather than giving them the living water, let, worse than kink the hose, you'll come after them. Instead of providing... Life, you will be offering them death, and that cannot come with a, through a covenant son. Esau, that, that way just won't work. So what's mom's advice to Jacob to keep him safe? The way this story ends is fascinating. 43, now therefore my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee. Flee to Laban, my brother, to Haran. How interesting that that's the one place that Isaac's never even been. It's the place that, no... I, was, I came out, and your father was never supposed to go in, but to preserve your life, maybe that's our only hope. You go in. Go live with my family. And notice her, her unrealistic optimism. She says, tarry with him a few days until thy brother's fury turn away. She thought that Esau's anger would blow over in a few days. Esau and Jacob do not reconcile until more than two decades later. It's like half their lifetime. I, what a tragedy. Yes, Jacob received the, the birthright and the blessing. Yes, he's the leader, but he's in a, for the next 20 years, he's not even going to be in a position to lead his family because he's got off, cut off from them. Could things have been different if Rebecca and, and, and Isaac had talked about this? Could things have been different if they'd sat down as a family council and explained things? And yes, Esau would have had to swallow hard with this maternal revelation. But would he have accepted it perhaps with less anger? At least less anger directed to his brother Jacob? Or at least less justifiable anger aimed in his direction? 20 years before Jacob finally returns. Verse 45 then, until thy brother's anger turn away from thee, and he forget that which thou hast done to him, then I will send and fetch thee from thence. And then notice how she puts it. Why should I be deprived also of you both in one day? And that again brings us back to the story of Cain and Abel, where Eve loses both sons at the same time, one physically, one spiritually. I can't allow that to happen. So, 46, Rebecca says to Isaac, probably trying to explain to him why 
He's about to lose his son, Jacob. She says, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, where the Hittites are coming from. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, like Esau did, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? You understand once again, this is the culminating moment in this story, because then next week we'll get on to Jacob and Rachel and Leah. What good is my life if I can't pass down the covenant? And if, if Jacob dies, or even if Jacob stays, but ends up marrying outside the covenant the way Esau has, those are our two sons, our only two sons. And if those two kink the hose, then it doesn't matter that we didn't. It doesn't matter if we kept the covenant if they don't keep their covenant. And what have we, what's happening to our family? What kind of decisions has Esau already made that disqualified him from this? That's why you know, you know now why I did what I did. You know that Jacob was the one that, that the covenant was supposed to go through him. He's a plain man. It wasn't his idea. He's complete. He's, a, he's trying to be as perfect as he can be. Yes, he has things to learn, and he'll learn some next week and forward. But Isaac, you know why I, why I thought I had to do this. And if for whatever mistakes I've made, I'm, maybe I'm already being cursed with some curse. I've lost Esau spiritually. I cannot lose Jacob physically or spiritually. So I sent him away. I'm sorry. But I know God will bring some, some joy out of this. Isaac, you divine laughter, you joy from God, we'll still find ourselves rejoicing someday, somehow. I don't know when. This is a hard story. I, I'm sorry that it's going to be a week before we get to continue it. Because like I said, the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau is one of the most beautiful moments in Genesis. And one that I don't think we, we spend enough time with. There will come beauty from these ashes. Now, do the ends justify the means? Only... Rebecca can answer that. Only Isaac can answer that. Only Jacob and Esau can answer that. Then again, maybe you and I can answer that, though not for them, only in our own situations. Like I said, when we did that court case in seminary, I think everyone sensed that the goal was to exonerate Rebecca and Jacob. Because they're the good guys, right? I mean, we can throw Esau under the bus. We'll see how it, that goes next week. But as long as... I, that uh, as long as Jacob and, and Rebecca come out unscathed, we're good to go. Well, is that oversimplifying things? Is that forcing people to be perfect in ways that they weren't and that we aren't? Like I said at the beginning, I think it's worth holding on to some of the ambiguity here in this story. Because there's plenty of ambiguity for us to wrestle with in our own lives too. I am grateful for the Christ-like attributes of every person in this story. And like I said, we'll have to wait for next week to get Esau's. But he has them too. I 
regret all of the flaws in my character as I regret the flaws in theirs. But I'm sure they regretted their own flaws far more than we could. We've talked about this in prior years, that every attribute is a coin that has a heads and a tails. And the heads of Rebecca's coin was her, I will go and do, and I am an agent, not an object, and I will act in, in courage and decisiveness, and, and I'll make sure that God's blessings flow. I will step into that stream, and I will take hold of the covenant, and I will be in the way and I'll make sure that, that God's promises are kept. Well, flip that coin. And maybe you see someone trying a little too hard to make sure God's promises are kept. Yes, he wants our help, but doesn't always need as much of it as we think. I got this. Maybe she's so decisive. And maybe she's so independent. She was willing to... Get a, she was willing to turn to God directly for an understanding of, if it be so, then why am I thus? That independence is a beautiful thing. That has some potential downfalls. If you don't become interdependent with your husband in decisions that matter most. So hold on to your strengths, my friends. Beware of their inherent weaknesses. If you love the, the heads of your coins and they have the guts, try to pick it up and just peek quickly at its related tales, and then just try to keep it heads up from that point forward. And lastly, if we shift from Rebecca to Jacob, since he's equally a part of this difficult story that we ended with, you see, as we'll see next week and the weeks following, here Jacob is on the giving end, but we'll see next week what it feels like for him to be on the receiving end of similar kinds of trickery. We'll see him receive a, a Leah when he expected a, a Rachel. We'll see him the next generation when some of his sons have betrayed another one of his sons and there is conflict and friction and anger and covetousness and everything that, that he felt with his own brother Esau is happening with his son Joseph and his other sons that betrayed him and then deceived their father with the help of some of their brother's clothing and an animal they'd killed. Hmm. You, can you hear the echoes? Now what's interesting about all of these stories is that God brings good out of them. He really does. This, this action will bring the, the birthright and the blessing to Jacob, which was God's intention. It will push Jacob off to Haran to marry within the covenant, to do what his dad never did, right? But, but for the same purpose, to marry within the covenant. And it's through this that he's propelled forward all along the path of destiny to meet, to meet Rachel, his covenant wife. It's, by, it's through the deception of his children that the whole family is saved as they go down to Egypt during their time of famine. God always brings beauty out of ashes, even if we're the ones who lit the fire. But there is some burning along the way. There's a loss along with the gain. And in Jacob's case, yes, you went forward, but you lost 
years and years you could have had with your, with your mother, with your brother. And in the next story, years and years you could have spent with your covenant son, Joseph. My friends, I, I keep praying for the Holy Ghost to help me learn the lessons I'm supposed to learn from these stories and that he'll do the same for you. This one doesn't have the same sense of closure that a lot of other stories do. Next week, I think we'll provide some of it when we see Jacob and Esau reconcile. And it's such a beautiful story. We only saw Esau's tails today. We'll see his heads next week. And there's heads in all of us. I'm grateful for a God that recognizes that and holds out hope for us all. There's tails in all of us too. And maybe that's why these kind, this kind of story doesn't sit quite so well with us because my own flaws and weaknesses don't sit very well with me either. But they're there. And maybe it's not wise to wish away the warts on, on saintly people in the Old Testament that still were human because it's not wise to wish away my warts either or at least not wise to pretend that they're not present. I know where I fall short. Just as I'm starting to see or trying to make sense of places where other people fall short too. We need a more nuanced, more sophisticated view of Scripture, evidently. Instead of just the blacks and whites that we, we grow up and just assume that people are perfect or, or perfectly flawed. We're all somewhere in the middle. We're humans. And thankfully, God is aware of that. Thankfully, he sent his son to come down to see and recognize what we've done, but also what we're up against. To recognize what we've done, but also recognize what we're trying to do as we try to make sense of ends and means and how best to accomplish them. And, and where's God in, in all of this? He's trying to guide us. I pray we'll turn to him. I pray we'll be more discerning I pray that we'll look to covenant and seek others rather than satisfying self. There are so many stories scattered throughout these pages, and I pray that we'll have eyes to see them whenever the Holy Ghost chooses to open those eyes and teach us the, the truths that only can come through him.